For this eternal truth is given That God will force no man to heaven When we got baptized, we wanted to gather to Zion with all the other saints. But when we tried to get on the boat in Buffalo, they wouldn't let us on account of our being black. So we walked until our shoes wore out and our feet cracked open and bled. We left blood on the ground with every step and we prayed asking the Lord to heal our feet so we could join you here. And he did. (laughs) This is Infants on Thrones. Philosophies of men mingled with humans. We are the core. After your faith has let you down. Welcome back to Infants on Thrones. I'm Glenn Ostland, and today I'm sitting down with author and playwright Melissa Leilani Larson to talk about the movie Jane and Emma. Now, you'll also hear a bit from Tom on this episode. He joins us about 30 minutes into the interview. And you'll hear a review of the movie from Lindsay Hansen Park. She recorded it and sent me the audio because she wasn't able to be on this interview that we did today. Now, we recorded this and put it all together pretty quickly today as a way to help Melissa and her fellow filmmakers get more tickets sold and more butts into the seats of the theater because this movie is on a limited release. It's only on 22 screens from Layton to St. George, but it's just being released in Utah and it's just playing this weekend, October 12th to October 14th, 2018. Now, if it performs well, it will be released in other markets as well. And just from watching the trailers and knowing what I know about Melissa, This is a movie that I definitely want to see. So I want it to come to Arizona. So if you guys are in Utah, go watch it or just buy tickets online and consider it a donation. I don't know. You could do that. Somebody told me that you could do that. I don't know. Maybe I shouldn't print all that, but somebody told me you could do that. Anyway, so that's what you'll be hearing today. And then as an extended Easter egg, I will also be attaching an interview that Tom and I did with Melissa over nine years ago when we were doing the Mormon Expression podcast. Uh, Melissa wrote a play then called Little Happy Secrets, and that's what we talked about. She's also provided me with the audio from that play, so I'll include that at the end of this episode as well. It's a good play. And for anyone who likes the Jeremy Goff smackdowns that I've done, you know, that anti-Mormon crusader that he is, there are two more of those on Patreon. One where he talks about the importance of motherhood, because... You know, 27-year-old single men living in Provo, Utah, have pretty good insights on motherhood, which, spoiler alert, he refers to as true feminism. And then he also had some things to say about the recent Kavanaugh hearing. So those smackdowns are available on Patreon if any of you are interested in checking them out. But now, let's get to the interview with Melissa. Now, we had some Wi-Fi issues, which when I was typing it to her, I misspelled as wife issues, so we're going to be joking about that. She did the interview from the phone, so the quality is not going to be as great as it normally is, but there you go. Here's the interview. The wife thing. The wife yeah. issue isn't resolved. And okay. If your wife issues aren't resolved, I we know. can do this instead. I have wife <laughs> issues all the time. I don't think oh I don't think God. they're ever resolved. Neither are husband issues for that matter. <laughs> yeah. Sorry about that. No, cool. So Tom Tom may be joining us. I know he wanted to. Um he uh he he, he gets off work around this time, so he's gonna try. He may jump on 
a little bit late, but um, I, I reached out to to Lindsay Hansen Park because I I saw her write up. I don't know, maybe you saw it on Facebook. She she went and she saw yeah she the movie she tagged me in it. Yeah, so yeah, I got her the, tickets. I wanted her to come to the preview on Wednesday, and she came. She was oh, great. Yeah, like I and I, I wish I was up there and I could see it too. I, um, but so when I when I saw that write up and I saw you on there, I went. Hey, I remember Melissa Leilani Larson when we talk about <laughs> it's Happy Little Secrets. Is that what it was called? The yeah, Little Happy Secrets. Little yeah. Happy Secrets. Yeah, and uh, so I, I went back and I actually listened to that episode again today, nine years ago. And it's yeah, that crazy. It's funny because Tom introduced me on that one as like his favorite active Mormon or something like that. And I wasn't totally an active Mormon at the time, but I'm much less of an active Mormon now. So it, it, at some point it'd be, it'd be fun to kind of catch up a little bit on where we are now, nine years after we last spoke, but um, oh, really sure. I want to focus on the, on the movie. So um, maybe, maybe we could just start t- tell me a little bit about what the movie is about and who, who are these two women, Jane and Emma, that you're writing about in this movie? Oh, sure. Um, Jane and Emma is a movie about, it's a, it's a, I like to think of it as a, a supposition. It's an educated guess at what the friendship between these two women might've been like. Um, because we have, and, and who are they? Yeah. People who are listening to this might not know who, who we're talking about Jane and Emma. Oh, okay, sure. Um, Jane Manning James, if I get really technical, her full name is like Jane Elizabeth Manning James Perkins, um, was one of the first uh, black members of the church. She joined the church in 1843. She was a very, very spiritual person, and she wasn't satisfied with what she felt um, she went, she went to church every Sunday in Wilton, Connecticut. She wasn't satisfied with um, what she was being taught. She didn't feel like there was enough Christ in church. This is, the, this one is day before she, she heard, joined the Mormon church? This is before she joined the Mormon church. Okay. And then one day she heard the missionaries preaching on the street. And she was baptized like a week later. And she was very, um, her faith is very, it's incredible. And she was very fervent in her um, desire to be with the saints. And she um, talked to all of her family, which at the time was like mother and a stepfather and lots of brothers and sisters and brothers and sisters-in-law. And she has a son, Sylvester. And she basically talks them all into, into talking to the missionaries and getting baptized. And they all as a group travel with the missionaries to Nauvoo. And this is in the um, fall of 1843. And what happens is the group gets... Um, they are going to, they're going to Nauvoo by canal boat. Mm-hmm. And in Buffalo, they get off the boat to kind of stretch their legs. And, um, and when they get back on the boat, the guys running the boat say, uh, you can't go any further unless you pay your bill now. And all of them, including the white missionary, um, had bought their tickets on credit, expecting to pay when they got to their final destination. Mm-hmm. But um, and the white members were allowed back on the boat, but the Manning family was not. Mm-hmm. And um, and they and Jane had a trunk full of clothes um, that was on the boat that she never got back. 
And the family decided at that point to walk from Nauvoo, excuse me, from Buffalo to Nauvoo. And wow. about 800 miles. Wow. And she tells that story. It's, it's an incredible story in her autobiography. She talks about how they, uh, they walked and it was starting to snow and they walked until their feet cracked open and bled. And they sang hymns to keep their spirits up. And they prayed for the Lord to heal their feet so they could keep walking. And he did. And they basically walked Nauvoo directly to the mansion house and knocked on Joseph Smith's door. And so Jane Manning is a pretty incredible person. And, uh, and Emma Hale Smith, who's the other major character in the story of the film, is Joseph Smith's first wife. Mm-hmm. And the film takes place. Um, the film takes place on the night after Joseph and Hiram were are martyred at Carthage. Okay. And their bodies. When what happens is that Jane has a dream, telling her to go back to Nauvoo. She left Nauvoo, and we know historically that she did that. She left Nauvoo to find a new job in Iowa across the Mississippi river, about 30 miles away. And, uh, the film starts with her having a dream telling her to go back to Nauvoo. She doesn't know why. And when she comes back, um, Joseph and Hiram's bodies have just been delivered. And, uh, and she realizes that the prophet who's a man she admires and loves very much has died. And she gets the sense that Emma is in a very fragile and vulnerable, vulnerable place emotionally. And so Jane decides to spend the night with Emma and keep watch, keep watch over her because Emma refuses to go to bed. She's terrified that the mob that killed Joseph is going to come back and steal his body and desecrate it. Wow. Is, the, so is that historically is, accurate as well? Or is this where you're taking some liberties and like this? this no, my, my, under, my understanding from the records is that's correct. They really did um, stay together and she protected yeah. her. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. That uh, that is that is a liberty because okay. we don't know. We don't know. I mean, the, there was a possibility. There was a, a, like a thousand dollar price on Joseph's head, dead or alive. Mm-hmm. That part is is accurate. No, the, the the night of Jane coming back that is imagined. That is imagined. So, okay. Um, it's uh, and so yes, that is a creative liberty. Um, basically, there's uh, there are tiny little scraps in history that um, say that uh, that when Jane went west with the saints in 1847, and she was in one of the first companies of saints to arrive in the Salt Lake Valley, um, when she decided to go west, Emma tried to talk her into staying. And it's just a line in someone's diary that um, it was very difficult for them to say goodbye. And so that's me. I mean, just that sentiment in a single line is a beautiful thing. But yeah, how do you make that into a movie? And so we just decided it was, uh, it was enough to start a story. And even if we did have to take some creative liberties, it's a story worth telling. Yeah. You, you sent me the link to the trailer and it looks really, really good. You know, <laughs> my, I, and, and I read, <clears throat> sorry about that. I read Lindsay's write up of it and she didn't really have criticisms of it. I think except the, the makeup, the way that the makeup was done on the film. And interestingly enough, when I showed my wife the trailer, she goes, Oh, well, that's really nice makeup for being back then. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. but as far as like yeah. the, the, the emotions and the relationship um that you're showing, the struggles of what it must have, have uh been like for her to go through what she went through, I, I just mm-hmm. I want to see the movie. That looks really good. Um how, how oh, yeah, I'm I'm really excited for you to see it. How, how much of the uh kind of controversial 
issues did you get into and explore? <laughs> um, well, the movie is basically, I mean, the relationship between these two women, the possibility that, that Jane writes in her history that Joseph and Emma invited her to be sealed to them as a daughter. Joseph and I have been talking and we, we want to adopt you. Adopt me? Into your family? Brother Joseph told me so many things about blessings in the hereafter. But this, you've become so dear to us. To me. I can't imagine not having you near. I got people too. I got parents who love me. My brothers and sisters. My boy. If I say yes, I believe in them all behind, ain't I? It's a blessing I can't share. That's another, that's another hint that there had to have been some kind of a close relationship between the two of them. Um, so the film is basically focused on race and on Jane's uh, position in this, in this town. Um, one of my favorite moments is where Jane talks about the saints in Nauvoo, how she expected coming to Nauvoo that it would be a different place. Um, but the saints aren't as good at being, you know, they're not as good at being saints as they think they are. Right. And, uh, and that's, uh, I should be able to, I should be able to quote the line. I wrote it, but that's something <laughs> along, along that line. And, uh, I probably rewrote it and rewrote it and rewrote it. Did you go through a bunch there's of rewrites? Been a lot of, <laughs> there are a lot of rewrites. There are a lot, yeah. and there are a lot of people, there are a lot of people that are very invested in the story. And so there's yeah. a lot of feedback. There are a lot of voices. Um, but it was, that's been the main thing to say that, you know, here's Jane, here's this person who in um, 20 years before the Civil War um, is a free black woman. She's freeborn in living in the North. And unfortunately, a lot of people are going to hear me say that and go, oh, well, then she was pretty well off. And I would say, no, no, she's not. Um, that's the problem is she should be well off. She should be just like everybody else. But it's still really, really hard to be black in America in 1844. And some of the things that she experiences as a black woman, um, and some of them are in the film are true. And some of them are, um, are created. Um, but, uh, those, some of what she experiences, those things are still experienced by black Mormons in the church today. Right. It's actually, I mean, here we are 150 years out and it's like, we still have problems with this and we need to deal with it up front. And I, I'm hoping that, um, people are going to look at this film and and not, you know, hey, so-and-so is racist, but to, like, look at themselves and be like, I need to be more open. I need yeah. to listen to how what other people are feeling and what their pain is like. So that's the, that's the big issue that we're tackling with this film. But I will tell you straight up that we don't. Um, there may be other wives in the house. Oh, but you, you don't you don't address it? We do address it. We do address it. And Jane and Jane and Emma talk about it. And that's another one of my favorite moments, but we also didn't, I mean, it's not a movie about polygamy. Yeah. So it's just kind of like historically accurate. It's there. It's going on. We're not going to go into a lot of detail about it, but we're not going to hide from it either. Right. Yeah. We're not going to hide from it either. I was very, um, going into this project. I was like, I, uh, if I write about Emma, then it's not fair to Emma to leave the polygamy out. Yeah. And, um, and so I think it needs to be there. And also it's interesting because I spent a lot of time with this really brief historical document. Jane dictated an autobiography when she was in her eighties um, in Salt Lake. 
And, uh, and she mentions um, four of Joseph's wives that were living in the house at the same time she was, the Lawrence sisters and the Partridge sisters. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so those are the four that we have in the film. And yeah, we don't, we don't hide from it, but we also don't dwell on it because people have a tendency to get worked up over it. Yeah. <laughs> and some people, that's their critique of the film is it doesn't need to be there. And I'm like, well, the fact that it's making you uncomfortable uh, is not a good enough reason for me to take it out. Right. <laughs> and that's how people react to the rape, too. I'm like, if it's making you uncomfortable, then maybe you need to think about something. Oh, did I mean, you just spoil something? Ooh, did I? Should, did should, I? I, should I edit out the part about the rape? Oh, I said race. I'm sorry. Oh, race. No. Oh, I thought you said rape. <laughs> there, there's, oh, there's, well. a, there's a scene in the trailer where she gets pushed up uh, against a tree by some guy. And so I was yeah, assuming there was something going on there. Yeah. Um, we do. He steals her horse. I mean, we do intimate that it could go farther. It's a scary moment. Mm-hmm. And, um, okay, maybe you want to edit this out. But there is a... Um, when Jane comes to... Nauvoo, well, don't, has, don't, don't say anything that I have to edit out because I want to just turn this around really okay. quick. <laughs> okay. No, no, that's fine. Sorry. All right. Yeah. That's fine. Yeah. Um, but yeah. If, I, if, I, if it sounds like I'm saying the wrong word, yeah, you probably should take that out. Yeah. But, um, yeah. but some people, uh, some of the response to the film so far, and it's, I mean, it's still pretty early today. Opening day. Yay. Um, yeah. the, the conversation around rates around um, Jane being a black woman and Emma being a white woman, um, you know, that does make people uncomfortable. And there are moments when Jane has to deal with some pretty blatant racism Mm -hmm. and it is uncomfortable. And that's the point. I mean, if I say as an Asian American woman, that that's uncomfortable for me, I can only sit back and say, imagine how uncomfortable it is for Jane. Yeah. And I can turn it off and, you know, I can walk away from this movie and Jane could not. And, black members of the church today cannot. Right. Yeah. So, so what, what can you say about the, the, the group that made it and what the process was like making it from the, and, and may, maybe start with like your inspiration. Did, was this, this, was this one of the stories that you were interested in? You started writing or did you get recruited by other people into this and, and it got, you know, the ball got rolling uh, elsewhere. How did that start? I kind of got uh, recruited. I've always, I went to school at BYU when I figured out I was a theater person. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when yeah. I figured out, no, I'm not an English major. I'm a theater person. How do I, how do I fix this? Oh, I go to grad school. Yeah. And, um, and Chantel Squires, who's the director on this film and does a really nice job. Um, she, was in un- she was an undergrad student at BYU studying filmmaking. And, and she ended up uh, making documentaries for a long time. And, uh, and we knew each other in school, but we never worked on anything together. And so this film was an opportunity for us to work together. I mean, it's her first narrative feature. Mm-hmm. Um, she's made documentary features, and this is her first narrative. Um, she's, uh, it's really great working with her, though, because she's a very good editor. She has a very strong sense of story, which an editor needs. And, um, and that's, we've had a lot of meetings where we wanted to make sure the script was just right. Mm-hmm. Um, we also had a lot of meetings we consulted with um, Tamu Smith and Zandra Rains, the Sisters of Zion, mm-hmm. um, and had a lot of conversations with them um, about what it is to be Black and Mormon today. Right. And, uh, and really learned a lot from them and were inspired and sometimes a little heartbroken hearing yeah. about their experiences and what they have, what they have endured. And yeah. I'm like, this is, this is 2018. 
I, I um, really only know about cool. about Xandra because of that practical joke that was played a couple of months ago by uh, Streeter, whoever right. that, that group was. Yeah, it, yeah, yeah. It, 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 and, and like watching her response to it, I, I watched that whole thing and I, I recorded a a response to it just for in, Infants on Thrones. It just it, it totally broke my heart. Yeah. And, uh, oh yeah, that, that was just, and we were, we were in the middle of working on this when that happened. And yeah. I remember the, the, uh, the momentary elation and then the heartbreak that came after. Yeah. Um, yeah. and, uh, it was, yeah, it was just not, it was a sad thing. Um, so we've had a lot of Temu and Xander have been really great to work with. And then we've also worked, um, with, uh, um, the producers on the film and both producers and executive producers. Um, Chantel was a producer. And, um, and Sandra and Temu helped with producing and then, um, Madeline Jorgensen and her husband, Brent Jorgensen were executive producers. And Madeline was also a producer. And then Jen Lee Smith, um, who's been producing some short films, worked on this as a producer and also as an executive producer. And so we've been really proud of the fact that the team has been a lot of women and a lot of women of color. Um, and it's, it's been really cool. To, to see this happen. I, it really hasn't happened in LDS filmmaking and it doesn't happen enough in just standard Hollywood filmmaking yeah, to have, yeah. you know, this many women on a project. And it sounds, it sounds like it's kind of a, like, like very collaborative, you know, that you were the writer, but that you were doing this with other people. And so it wasn't just your own ideas and thoughts that you're putting in here, but, but it's kind of a group effort. Is that right? I, I would, I would say that's, that's fair to say. Um, yeah, because the the skill I'm bringing to the table is, you know, I I craft dialogue, right. I craft themes. Yeah. Uh, but there's also a lot of there are a lot of voices. We need to be sure that this was authentic, right? And that it was authentic to to the Black Mormon experience. So Temu and Zandra were key in that, and uh, and then we just also had a lot of people who, you know, were very invested that the story um, be told and told well and told now. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I would say that yeah, we tried really hard to to keep a spirit of collaboration. And I mean, we had a lot of strong personalities, um, and so but that's part of that's part of the process. Yeah, <laughs> you need drama to to make drama. Yeah, sometimes. I, I want to ask you a historical question that may or may not be relevant to the movie, but I'm wondering if you came across this when you were doing research for it. I I had been told from. Uh, Oh, her, her name's Martha Taysom, and she she was a historian that I knew in Bloomington, Indiana, when I lived there. She told me once mm-hmm. that um, Emma actually left Joseph at one point. That she, and I think maybe this came from William Clayton's journals or something, but that she went to St. Louis, and the story that was told commonly that she was shopping for furniture, but she really had gotten fed up with the whole you know, polygamy thing. And she left. And this was during the time when he married the partridge, uh, girls that the the sisters that were only with him for maybe a month. And that Mm -hmm. if I get the timing, right, that it was that incident that, that pissed Emma off and, and made her leave. And so he went ahead and married them anyway. And then when she came back from St. Louis, he kind of hid it from her, um, that, okay, this, this didn't happen, but she gave him his permission, her permission to do it. And so he kind of did like a sham wedding for the two of them. So if, if you're, but then they only lived with them for maybe a month afterwards. So it seemed like you mentioned that the Partridge uh, sisters were there in the house when certain Mm -hmm. uh, interactions happened with Jane and Emma. 
Was that anything that you came across in the movie? Are there any hints of anything like that in there or am I out in left field? Um, I have heard, I've heard that story. I do know, I did know about the shopping trip to St. Louis. I didn't, I haven't read about her um, leaving him, okay. uh, but it makes sense in that time frame. I do know that she was very upset. That, um, my understanding is that the Partridges um, and the Lawrences were all living in the house under the guise of working in the right. hotel. Yeah. And that he married the Partridges secretly. Yeah. And then, um, and then when Emma, he told Emma, she was very, very upset about it. And then, um, and then agreed to the second marriage, which she was a witness to. Yeah. And then she also agreed to have the Lawrences in the house, but then, yeah, they weren't there very long before she kicked them all out. Right. Yeah. And so, um, and I would have to double check. I mean, that's all in, it, yeah. it is in the research and I, I don't have the timeline right in front of me, but sure. yeah, it's all, it's just very, very close to, and that's around the time that Jane, I want to say it's like in April and May that the mansion house, Joseph actually makes the decision to rent it to somebody else. Mm. Um, and, and send the partridges of the Lawrence's home because Jane, because excuse me, because Emma says no more. And that's yeah. part of the reason that Jane has to get a job in Burlington is uh-huh. the hotel is, the hotel is no more. Uh, um, and I haven't found anything that says that exactly, but it just kind of, I do know that Jane went to Burlington to, to look for work. Okay. She doesn't say why, but that's what makes sense to me. Um, and, and, yeah. and, and it looks like the, the movie kind of um, highlights her struggle with this question of being sealed to Joseph and Emma and, and the adoption. How, how do you deal with that? Well, the way that I understand it from Jane's autobiography is that Emma came to Jane um, and and said to her, Joseph and I would like you to be, a, we would like to adopt you. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it's a very, sealing is a very, very new doctrine at this point in time. And Jane, at the time that she was living in the mansion house, I mean, she probably hasn't even been a member of the church for a full year. Mm-hmm. I mean, she had just come in the fall of 1843 and she basically lived in the house from 1840, the fall of 1843 to the spring of 1844. And, um, and the film takes place, you know, Joseph's death is in late June, um, of 1844. And so if, if Joseph and Emma made this offer to her, her answer to that is, and this is from her autobiography. She says, I didn't understand it at the time. So I said, no, mm she didn't understand what Emma was offering her. And so she said no to it. And, and something that we play with in the film is, I mean, that sounds awful to say it that way. Yeah. <laughs> something we play with in the film, sure. something we explore in the film yeah. is this idea of her figuring out with her return to Nauvoo and realizing that Joseph is dead, that there were blessings that that ceiling promised her that she had lost because she said no. And mm. now Joseph is dead. And it's very possible that, other men who will replace him in leading the church are not going to give her, they're not going to honor that blessing that she was promised. Yeah. And that turns out to be true. That turns out to be true. So there's a lot of false rumors out there. Like, I mean, there's so many times that I've posted something and a troll will say, well, how can you make a faith building film around Jane about around Joseph wanting Jane seal to him as an eternal servant? And I'm like, here's the thing is Jane wrote to every president of the church from Brigham Young to Joseph F. Smith, who was president when she died in 1908. And she asked them each to honor Joseph's promise to her 
to say, Joseph and Emma asked me to be sealed to them. Will you honor that sealing? I should be sealed to them as a daughter. And everybody said no. They all said no until 1894, when Wilfred Woodruff is the president of the church at that time, and he um, okays a special ceremony. And as far as I know, nothing has been done like this since. But in that ceremony, Jane is attached by proxy to Joseph and Emma as a servant. And this was decided, I don't know, among, among the brethren, they thought that Jane should be satisfied with this. Yeah. But the thing is that Jane wants to go to the temple and Jane wants, she understands now that she's a much older woman in 1894, 50 years after the prophet is dead. She um, understands what she has lost and she's trying to get it. She says, I was promised these blessings. I'm a member of the church like you. Yeah. She says in a letter to John Taylor, she says, why is there no blessing for me? And that's a line that we, we quote that in the film yeah. that she's trying to figure out where she belongs and why, why should she stay in a church that where she should have these blessings that everybody else has, but she doesn't have them. Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, that's how I answered the trolls. I'm like, this movie sets up the fact that she should have had these blessings and yeah. she was denied them for the rest of her life. Yeah. And her temple work was done in 1979 but she's sealed to her husband, Isaac. Mm-hmm. I don't believe she's ever been sealed to Joseph and Emma. And, um, except for that one time as a servant. Attached. Oh, attached, but it wasn't, it wasn't a ceiling. It was something different. It was something different. Yeah. Oh, That's strange. the thing is it's kind of like, it's really confusing. And, and yeah, the trolls will grab it and say, Oh, but Joseph wanted her to be sealed to him as an eternal slave. And, uh, and that phrasing is just, oh, it just really irked me. Yeah, I mean, so that, I'm not proud of the ceremony at all, but it's, yeah, but, but it's so, not Joseph for one thing. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that's what I wanted to, to, to clarify. So it sounds like what you're saying is the, that there, there's this mistruth, this lie, this myth that, uh, trolls and angry ex-Mormons are, are, are um, uh, likely to embrace because it makes Joseph Smith look bad. And it's that Joseph Smith wanted to seal her to him as a slave, but there's no evidence that Joseph Smith said that he wanted her as a slave. That's what happened 50 years later. Is that right? That's what happens 50 years later is that other church leaders. And I believe Joseph F. Smith plays Joseph as the proxy in the ceremony. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, he's a, he's uh, one of the 12 at the time. Yeah. Wilfred Woodruff is the president and they, and they, they do the ceremony because she's, she keeps asking and they keep saying no. Um, and, uh, and they, so they, they set up this special ceremony and the word that, um, Paul Reed uses in his book, um, about race and Mormonism is, uh, the word he uses is attached. And I believe that's the word that is used in the ceremony. Yeah. Um, so Jane is attached to Joseph and Emma as a servant. She's not sealed as a child. She's not sealed as a slave. And by my understanding, she's not sealed. Um, so she's sealed to her husband, Isaac. And yeah, yeah as, of, as of the, the proxy ceremony that was done in 1979, she was sealed to Isaac. She was sealed to Isaac, yep. Okay. All yeah. right. Interesting. So, yeah. So, so, so that's so something mo- that we, we have her struggle with through the movie. Is that something that she realizes that she's lost with, with Joseph's death? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and so the movie opens today. Is it, is it just playing over this, this weekend in select theaters in Utah? Where, where can people go to see it and when? It is playing, it is opening today. 
Um, it is playing in 22 um, megaplexes and cinemarks from Logan to St. George in Utah. Mm. We are a tiny movie. Um, we were not, the film is not made by the church. It's, it's independently produced. Um, Excel is involved in distributing it, but, uh, but it's, a, it's, it's an independent film. And so right now what we need to try to do is just do really, really well this weekend. Um, and if we do well in Utah, it's very possible. We're all hopeful that the film will expand to other states and hopefully go nationally in the next couple of weeks, but it all depends on how we do in the next three or four days. <laughs> that's, that's why we're, that's why we're doing this. So if I, if I haven't said yeah. it in the introduction to this episode, I, you know, like I, I, I saw Lindsay's post about it the other day. I saw that it was Melissa, you know, Tom and I did this interview with Melissa nine years ago that I'm going to actually attach as an extended Easter egg to this episode. And, and when I reached out just to congratulate you earlier today, you said, let, let your Utah peeps know. <laughs> and I said, well, if you want to get on and record something, let's do it. And I'll publish it tonight. So we're doing this really, really quick as a way to try yeah, yeah. to help people get out and see this movie. Um, and I'm doing that selfishly because I want it to come to Arizona so that I can see it. Um, I, w- I want you to see it too. I want it yeah. to go to Arizona. I have so many friends all over the country. I have people reaching out from Australia who are like, yeah. when is it going to come here? Yeah. And the, and the most of, the most depressing thing is when people just kind of sit back and go, Oh, it's not going to come to me. I have to wait for it to go to DVD. Yeah. I just, that doesn't help us at all. Like that it's for, for movies like this to do well. And for more movies like this to get made, we really need people to support it in the theater. So even if you're not here, um, there are people that are buying tickets for friends in Utah, or some people are just treating it like a donation are just buying tickets. Yeah. So, um, I didn't say that out loud. Did I say that out loud? Da, da, da. I but, don't uh, know. I, I, you, you were just speaking theoretically, theoretically, someone could buy tickets from even outside of the state if they didn't see it. Yeah. Is, is there, I a, mean, you know, there, <laughs> there are, yeah, the, the film is on Fandango and we also have links to theaters on our website, which is Jane and Emma movie.com. There's a where, where's playing button on the top left yeah. that lists all the theaters in Utah. Um, it has buttons you can click to go to those theaters and see where it's playing. I mean, it's playing several times a day. It's been playing. It started, I think, the first Saturday I saw listed for today was at 1030. Yeah, I wasn't nervous about that at all. Yeah. So, <laughs> but you were. Um, but it's, uh, I'm, really, I'm just good at being nervous. But yeah, it's playing all up and down the state, and we just need it to do, we just need it to do well. And if it does well here, then... Yeah, the hope is that it's going to go other places. I mean, we, of course, ideally, you know, you would love for a film to open in LA and explode all over sure. the place. Yeah. But uh, that's just not the way that independent film is. I mean, we, we're, we're trying to make it work here in the Mormon corridor in hopes that it will be able to go other places. I do feel that the movie is, is a good movie beyond its Mormonness. <laughs> I'm yeah. going to just try to use that word as much as possible and get myself in trouble. Mormon. Yeah. Tom's joined. Good story anyway. <laughs> Tom, let me make sure your audio's going because I, I didn't hear you when you laughed there a second ago. Can you hear me? Oh, he was I very, can. very secret. Hi, Tom. Yeah, Melissa, it's so good to hear from you, man. Congratulations on your movie. Awesome. Hey, thanks. Thanks a lot. I'm excited. Yeah. So, so Tom, I've, I've, got, a, I've got a few questions for, for Melissa that I want to follow up from our, our discussion with her nine years ago, we've, we've pretty much gone through most of the movie stuff, but were there things that you wanted to ask her about the movie that, uh, you know, you're here now? Yeah. I certainly don't want to ask something that's already been, uh, it's okay. asked, but, 
are you are you happy with the with the product of how it turned out were you or how hands-on were you with the movie making sort of coming from your script and stuff like that well i um sadly being a writer <laughs> needed to uh you know have a day job as yeah. much as it is the dream to have your screenplay produced um so they were shooting days there's a 15-day shoot up at this is the place park this is the place heritage park and uh and so there were a couple of times that i was able to sneak away from work and go up and be on set which was a lot of fun um but i have worked really closely with Chantel squires who's the director we had a lot of meetings basically from uh, her kids would go to bed so we'd meet from like 10 p.m to 2 a.m sometimes till 5 a.m um either you know working through kinks in the script or when um shooting was done and we did, I did do some revision during production because that just happened sometimes. Yeah. And it was nice to be close enough that I could do that. And then I was also able to help her um, with some, um, some edits in, in, the, in post-production, in the editing process, you mm-hmm. know, to work through and be like, because then what you're doing is you're thinking about the story visually. Right. And, um, and some scenes get moved around because, oh, this works better now that we can see it on screen, things like that. Yeah. So I have been involved in the process. I would have loved to have been on set more, but it just wasn't, it wasn't possible. But um, I am really pleased with the product. We have some really fabulous actors. Danielle Deadweiler from Atlanta. Um, she auditioned via video. All three of our leads, um, they are not LDS. They, they auditioned um, via video and callbacks via Skype. And all three of them are really, really great. They, they joined and, the church, though, after finding out about this story. They though. joined the church via, via Skype. Yes. <laughs> via <afterwards>. Skype. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, but they, they are all just really, it was actually really great to have them bring, have them just kind of bring themselves to the table and, and, and explore the characters without, um, probably without the baggage that an LDS person would. And that was, uh, that was, I, I, I was very gratified to see that, that, that the characters were coming across the way they needed to. Um, and, uh, and they, they were getting that from what was on the page and, and from working with Chantel, that was a release to me, but Danielle plays Jane and she is just, she is phenomenal in this movie. I mean, if you don't go for any other reason, um, and I think there are a lot of good reasons to go to this movie, but her performance, if we could like. I don't think we're eligible for Oscars, but I say give her that little gold man right now because she deserves it. She's so fabulous. I was, I was absolutely impressed with what I saw in that trailer from her. Yeah. She's great. And Emily Goff and Brad Schmidt are both based in LA and they play Emma and Joseph respectively. And they're really great. There was some really great chemistry between them and, and Danielle. And, uh, it all just, I think the pieces kind of fell into place. It, I think it turned out really, really well. I mean, ideally, I mean, yeah, of course we would love to shoot our exteriors in Nauvoo in June, but that's, it's not possible. And, you know, it's crawling with tourists. So some people will criticize that. It's like, oh, my quibble with the film is it looks like it takes place in the winter. I'm like, yeah, that's when we were able to get Nauvoo. It was March. Ah. <laughs> right. I'm just it really... Look, 
I'm really thrilled that it seems to it seems to me that you're you're beyond happy with the end product because sometimes a lot a lot of what you said you know you went through the script or whatever and then you go through the revision and of course the director and the even some of the actors can sometimes uh play a little bit with some of the dialogue and the and some of the words and stuff like that and i'm glad mm-hmm. that at least for from your perspective that you're pleased and maybe it did uh your original script justice and stuff like that so i'm glad to hear that Thank you. Yeah, I feel I feel really good about it. I feel like there was a really strong sense of collaboration, and I had that. I definitely had that with Chantel. And there, I have worked with directors who kind of feel like it's their their job to like to um, revise the script. That that's part of what the director's job is. Right. Um, and uh, and things. And you know, I mean, there were there were changes that were made on set, and sometimes it was Chantel calling me, and sometimes it was the actors trying it out, and they figured something else out. But it was never. That's fine. I mean, that's what happens. It's, it's, it's a living, breathing thing. Um, and that's, it's going to be a little bit different than what was on the page initially. But, um, but I have been part of that process and I do trust. The nice thing is to be trusted. Like the actors do trust what I give them and I trust them to give the performance that needs to be given. And I trust Chantel to find that performance and pull it out. So there is, there's an element of handing it off. And this has been a situation where I have been more pleased to hand it off than I have been in other situations. (laughs) Of course. Yeah, sure. That's great though. Good. So I've, I've got uh, three questions for you from uh, that are follow-ups from our interview from nine years ago. (laughs) Oh wow. (laughs) When, when I, when I listened back to that today, at one point you said something like this, you said that Mormon art is typically created primarily by Mormons for Mormons only. And you wanted to write to a broader audience. That was a goal of yours nine years ago that you wanted to do something that wasn't just for Mormons. Do you, do you feel like you've done that with this movie that non-Mormons are going to look at this and enjoy it for reasons other than what Mormons would? I think so. I think, um, I think that I look at these two women and I look at the friendship that we've tried to build between them and the faith that they both had and, uh, and the connection between them. I think there's a lot there that is interesting and organic and relatable, um, without delving too deep into the Mormon aspect or Mormon theology. Yeah. Um, there are some things I think um, that people might find a little, you know, oh, it's healing power. I do try to explain those things without stopping and, you know, holding up a placard that says, hey, this is what the healing power is. <laughs> right. This um, is what this word means. that we just use actually means. This is our insider speak. <laughs> Let us explain it for you. <laughs> Let's just tell you what this means yeah. exactly. Um, I mean, because even the fact that we are delving into some of this history um, and there were some moments, uh, flashbacks that explore Jane's mm-hmm. history. We as a people, as a culture, are not as familiar with her story as we should be. So some right. of that's going to be like eye-opening to Mormons. Um, and then all of it's eye-opening to non-Mormons. I hope so, that it will just be interesting. Um, so far, some non-Mormons have seen it and have responded really positively to it. So my hope is that that goes on. Yeah, I feel, I feel like it is. Um, one of the aims of this movie was to make, we wanted to make a movie, um, that was aimed at a, at a Mormon woman audience. You know, it's about friendship. It's about sisterhood. It's about black women and white women 
getting along and loving each other and learning how to love each other. But I do feel like it is artistically beyond that. I do feel like um, that non-Mormons will will see and understand the relationship between these women. And maybe, I don't know, maybe Google Jane and Emma and learn something that they didn't know before about Mormons. That's cool. Cool. It is cool. All right. My next question is kind of specific to the play that you wrote that we talked about nine years ago, Little Happy Secrets. And um, rather than me try to summarize it and butcher it, could you could you just give like a quick summary? What was Little Happy Secrets about? How would you describe that to somebody? Uh, Little Happy Secrets is the story of a recently returned um, sister missionary, Claire, who um, is coming back to BYU and she is reunited with her best friend from before her mission, Brennan. And, uh, and Brennan's also returned from the mission. And as they're brought back together and try to, you know, kind of settle back into the routine of being students, Claire is um, kind of dealing with the romantic feelings that she has for Brennan. And, uh, and ultimately, it's, it's about her um, kind of balancing her, um, her feelings and her... She has a little bit of guilt... And but also coming to realize, you know, who she is and um and doing that within the church. Yeah. Within her within her faith. She kind of uh, she struggles between her feelings and her faith. Yeah. So so my my last two questions that I have center around this character of Claire. Because when we when we talked about her on the episode nine years ago, you said that that little happy secrets, you called it a speculative autobiography. And by that you meant that you weren't Claire but you kind of identified Uh with Claire and you thought if, if there is an alternative version of myself, we'll make her Claire. Um, And I, I thought that was such a cool way of, of answering that question as a speculative autobiography. So my question here is Jane and Emma, a speculative biography (laughs) in any kind of way. And, and if so, how much of you, did you put in either Jane or Emma? Do, do you relate to either of them in the way that you've related to other characters that you've created in the past? Oh, that's a fabulous question. Thanks. Yes, I would say that. I was really happy when I thought of it. I wrote it down in everything. <laughs> <laughs> you wrote it down. Save it for later. Yeah, you should save that. Write that in your journal. It's yeah, that's right. My book of remembrance. <laughs> um, my book of memories. Um, the I would say that it would be fair to... to to um, categorize this film as a speculative biography. Because <laughs> um, it's, yeah, we're taking a stab. I mean, I'm trying, I've done a lot of research on both women, and unfortunately, you know, uh, we don't have a lot on either of them. And, and, and so with what I had, I just kind of took a guess at what their personalities were. And of course, part of that is just naturally going to be me. It's going to be me going, I'm thinking about, you know, I want this scene to have a conversation you know, uh, where they talk about, um, and there's a scene where, where Emma asks Jane about her relationship with Isaac James. And, uh, and I knew historically that both that both that Jane and Isaac get married, but then they also get divorced 17 years later. And so being me, I'm going to write that scene with, um, Jane being a little hard to get. And Isaac also appears in the movie played by Dana Gerald and he's great. And, uh, the this idea of um, this relationship, you know, I, it's going to be just a little tinted by the fact that their marriage ended, and you know, that's just me. It's like I know that I can't leave it out 
<laughs> I can't leave it out of the story. So it chooses, you know, to, to manifest itself by Jane being a little, you know, playing a little hard to get with Isaac, a little like she's unsure. And Emma's like, you know, he likes you. You should, you should go after, you should go after that. <laughs> and so it, it, the scene is a little bit of girl talk, you know. That, <laughs> thou, uh, thou shouldest hit that. <laughs> and I <laughs> How, how's and that like, like that right on dialogue is that good thou shouldest hit that <laughs> no <laughs> I'm not hired um no no well I don't know what's your rate what's your rate Are you <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> super cheap man super cheap. <laughs> super cheap oh good because that's what I can afford right now yeah. That's great. okay yeah you're hired I'm going home <laughs> you can take it in the air I'm leaving but the um the uh those moments where it's like I'm just trying I tried as best I could to take their personalities what I would what I was inferring their personalities to be from the sources that I had and then put those within those personalities in scenes and let them interact with each other. And then also, you know, it's it's a film, so there has to be there has to be a narrative drive. We have to move forward. That we have to be a, the story needs to go. Um, it needs to go somewhere. We need to build to something and their friendship is part of that. It's like, we're going to put it to the test and see if, you know, see if it's going to break or see if it's going to be, if it's going to bend and just be different than it was before. So I would say that, um, I do relate to both of them, at least in this film. Um, I can feel and relate to Jane's sense of wanting to belong in the church and not always feeling a part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't, I'm not, I'm not black. I can't speak to that particular experience, but I can, um, I can look at it as a metaphor and I can, I can definitely empathize with it and relate to it in other ways as feeling sometimes of an other, as a single woman, for example, in a culture of marriage, you know, to be kind of outside mm-hmm. of things. Um, you know, I'm super excited about the two hour block, but then part of me is like, we are just really all built around the nuclear family, aren't we? Mm-hmm. Okay. Cause they're like, Hey, yeah, you can get together with your friends and have a pretend third hour. And I'm like, yeah, no. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, it, just, and that, that kind of leads to my third question because I'm like, I wonder if Melissa's still in the church today or not. But here's how I asked the question. Okay. So, so we're, we're not, go, we're not coming out. Did you, did you, did you write it down? Yeah, I wrote it down. down. Yeah, I wrote it down. (laughs) Okay. I said, um, (laughs) so in that interview nine years ago, I asked you if you thought, like, what's Claire's future? Is Claire going to stay in the church? And you said yes. And you gave it like, we talked about like 15 years or something like that, that you didn't think that Claire would ever leave the church. And, you know, so I'm Mm -hmm. thinking, but that's nine years ago. Did Claire ever leave the church? And how did Claire respond to the November policy when that came out a couple of years ago? (laughs) I don't think Claire, uh, I don't think Claire has left the church. I think Claire was shaken by November. Yeah. Um, I don't think, I think she was shaken by it. I think she was hurt by it. I don't think she left because of it. I think she went to God with it and asked why. Um, Because, hey, speculatively, I did that. Sure. Um, It was a hard thing. And I, I, I am still in the church and, um, and there are things about that are that are great. And then there are days when I go, huh. And uh, and there are things that are hard. But then see Jane, Jane had so many excuses, and excuses not the right word. Jane had so many reasons to leave, and all of her family did leave 
You know, they're like, Hey, I'm glad you like this. It's not for me. You know, mm-hmm. her kids left the church. Um, her brothers and sisters who had joined the church with her in Connecticut, they all eventually left the church. Jane, but Jane stayed and Jane said, she asked for a blessing that she had been promised and she never got it in her lifetime. And yet she stayed and she stayed faithful. And I look at her and I go, she has a much better reason to leave than I do. I get angry about things. I get upset about political things. I get upset that we focus on, I don't want to have to tweet the whole name of the church. It's too many letters. <laughs> um, you know, it's like Mormon works in so many ways for me. And I, you know, I struggle with that. a very superficial thing to be bothered by. That's also a superficial thing to be talking about, but um, <laughs> that, that's yeah. like, you know, where I am, where I, I get upset about things. But then I also think, I think about Jane and now that I've spent so much time with her uh, and she's like, Hey, I stayed. So you got to figure out a way to make it work. Yeah. And I, you know, kind of mumble, I murmur, yeah. me murmuring going, ah, Jane, I don't want to, but, um, but it's, I, yeah, I can't, I don't actually fully understand why she stayed, but she did. Yeah. And, you know, I have to sort that out, you know, thinking about her as a character, because that's, you know, high right dialogue for her is, is it has to be motivated. I have to think, yeah. Jane said this, and I have to find a way in the scene to make it, it has to work. And I have to believe that she feels this way, and the audience has to believe it. And, and yeah, it's, she, uh, she's just an incredible person. I mean, she had serious, serious faith. And, uh, so, and I kind of feel that way about, about Claire. I think she struggles. She's struggling with where the church is. I don't know that she has, I don't know that Claire has come out. Um, I think there's an alternative re- alternative universe yeah. Yeah. <laughs> where clay, where Claire potentially, um, got married to a guy because she thought it was the right thing to do. That's mm. another story. Yeah. You know, um, but I see, I see that happening to her. Um, but I don't see her, I see her being hurt by some of, you know, some of the policies and cultural, uh, choices around Mormons and LGBTQ friends. Yeah. And, uh, now, now more than ever, do I want you to write a sequel, but I know you've got enough on your plate as it is, but I'd love. <laughs> that. Yeah. Yeah, well, I think everybody kind of imagines, can imagine, because there's a lot of different ways it could go. I kind of feel like that's what I did with the ending of the play. There are a lot of people who ask me about that right. that line where Brendan says, stop me now. And it's like, there's there's a bunch of different ways it could be played. Yeah. And um, if I write a sequel, it's like picking one. Yeah. And, uh, and it's like, maybe it's better for it to be open-ended. Yeah. I don't know. I, I, so that, I, sounded, that sounded deep and cool. <laughs> it is it is deep and cool and i and i won't allow you to besmirch that um but uh you know like one of the things again i, I haven't seen the movie i've only seen the trailer but but there's the scene in the trailer where jane is just pouring out her soul to god saying i feel like this is where you want me to be but i don't get it this is hard why is there so much pain yeah. in this i don't understand what you want from me i don't I'd like to believe that this is right, that I'm where you want me to be, that this is your church and I'm your child, because it's too much pain, Lord, too much suffering. And 
yeah. You know, that it's, it's, it's not easy to leave the church by any stretch of the imagination. But I, I think when, when you do leave the church, it's easy to forget the different things that really were fulfilling and valuable when you were in it and, and the, the value of faith in that. So that, that's something that I'm interested when I, when I do end up seeing this movie to see how you, how you play that out. Because, you know, like you said, this is something that you're doing in your life. Is it always your favorite thing to be going to church and hearing everything that you hear there? No, but you've, you're, you've got a faith in this and it means something to you and you're going to right. do that. Hell or high water. And that's, that's what Jane's doing in this thing too. So I, 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 I'm really looking forward to it. I think it's great. Great. Yeah, no, I, I think that's, that's a good, it, it's uh that's a good way to say it. It's kind of like, it's like, yeah, there's something that's there and there's something, I feel it and I gotta, I have to stay true to it and I can't explain it. And, um, and I do, it is upsetting because there are things that happen culturally and politically and I'm like, why? Yeah. And, um, but then there are also things where I, I feel, I feel a spirit that says it's okay. And I'm like, all right, you know, there it's, it's different. It goes on from day to day. And, um, and it's, it is hard. Um, it's hard. Yeah. And I can't imagine the hard it was for Jane because yeah. dude, I'm, I'm spoiled in so many ways. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Melissa, thank you for coming on on short notice, and uh, we, we we wish you all the best. Absolutely, with, with the way that this this opens, and hope that it opens up either even more opportunities for you to do similar things in the future. Sure. And just, thank you. I'm just so thrilled for you. You know, I don't know you that well. I think we were words with friends. <laughs> players for a little yeah. while after the last interview and you hit my ass all the time and I couldn't take it. And <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, oh, we, yes. should do that again. we should, we should. My daughter just got me on it again. So I'm, I'm on words with friends again, but. Okay. Yeah. Send Good. me your, send me your handle and I'll put it on again. I think I had to take it off because I was doing it too much. Yeah. That, that does um, happen. Yeah. Danger. I'm like, Ooh, we're games. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think, I think I'm Gaddy Ant and Rob. Is my, my, tag. That is like my game tag for a long time, Gaddy Ant and Rob. So oh, that's funny. All right. And anything, anything you want to say, Tom? Or is it is it underscore? Or is it all one word? I I think there's Gaddy a space Ant between Gaddy Ant and Rob. I'm not sure. Okay. I will. I will try it. Then I'll see what happens. Yeah. Um. No, I would just say uh, final parting shot. Um. Hey, if you're listening to this and you're in Utah. Um, you should go see this movie this weekend. Yeah. And, uh, and if you, even if you don't want to see the movie, but you want to, you know, maybe give a little bit to a good cause, there's there, the show is going to be playing on Sunday and there are going to be theaters that Mormon attendance is going to drop off. You could just buy it. Even though they've got an extra up, hour in the okay. day now. They have an extra hour in the day. They should go see Jane and Emma. I mean, <laughs> come on guys. Come on guys. That's what that extra hour is for. That's why they did it. That's why they did it. So you could go see Jane and Emma. Yeah. That's yeah, my, exactly right. My wife and I will be seeing it this weekend. So cool. yeah, I'm, I'm excited to see it. Oh, excellent. Excellent. Yeah. I'm so glad. I'm so glad you got tickets. Um, that's, that's exciting to me. Yeah. Yeah. There's, it's, it's always thrilling. It's a little bit of a thrill because there's so many more people who can see a film than see a play. I mean, that's just the way, that's just the way that things work. So I'm hopeful that people will go and see it and support it and, and be open-minded because it is a more challenging film than I think we're used to. Yeah. 
at least in our culture. Um, I, I was selfish that way as an artist. I wanted to make a movie that I would go to and that I would enjoy. And, um, and I hope, but I do think that there's a lot in there for people to, to be moved by and to at least at the very least think about, even if it makes you angry, think about it. So yeah, go see the movie. Um, opening weekend is really, really crucial to our survival. Oh, awesome. Cool. Well, we should right. the best then. This is awesome. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's good to talk to you guys. I know. It's like, did we really talk nine years ago? That's depressing. Nine I know. Ago, you yeah. kept saying nine years. I was like, wasn't that just like a little while ago? No, it was 2009. And it, it, it was interesting listening back to it today because, Tom, you're, you're like, that's pretty ballsy. You didn't use that word. But to be bringing <laughs> up these LGBTQ issues right on the heels of Prop 8, which was what, 2008? Yeah. It was? Oh, my. Something like and, that. And and to, to yeah. think of you know we've got we've got a long way in nine years as far as how accepting people are of it. I think even yeah. probably in the church, even though not at the highest levels of the church. But yeah, there's still a few people in the church right. who haven't. Yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, cool. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Melissa. Thank you so much. I hope and, and you go by uh, Mel, right? You go by Mel. Mel, yeah, Mel is great. Melissa's. Melissa's fine. Missy okay. is bad. Missy's bad. Yeah. See, my sister is <laughs> Melissa and I always call her Missy, but nobody else does. And then she got a dog that was already named Missy. So now it's just really confusing. Uh, see, that's really confusing. Yeah. My best friend, my best friend is Melanie and we just confuse everybody all the oh, time because yeah. we're both Mel. Yeah. Yeah. And people hear my middle name and they want to call me Melanie. So it's like, I'm just, yeah. out to, I'm just out to confuse the world. That's my job. <laughs> Le- Leilani is such a cool name though. Like Leilani is fun to say. It is fun. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I have actors who like to say my whole name as a warm-up exercise. <laughs> <laughs> nice. That's great. Love it. All right. Well, thanks yeah. for talking with us, and uh, hopefully we'll talk oh, again sure. soon, another time. Yeah, that would be great. Cool. All awesome. right. Thanks, you guys. My name is Lindsay Anson Park, and I'm the host of the Year of Polygamy podcast. I am a Mormon feminist. I've been blogging about women's issues in the Mormon movement for about a decade now. And my podcast is quite popular because it focuses on the stories of women in Mormon history. It's the good, the bad, and the ugly. We don't gloss over anything. And so I give that as a preface to sort of give my review for this film. Now, I need to state my biases right up front. I know the filmmakers. I know the writer of this film. I'm huge fans and friends with them. This this movie was written and produced by women, which is really cool in the Mormon community. Uh, Melissa, Leilani, Melissa Leilani Larson is one of my favorite playwrights. She's written some really powerful Mormon plays. Uh, she really digs into the complicated stories and themes in Mormonism in such a beautiful, endearing way. And it just really resonates with me. So Melissa wrote the script and then Tamu Smith and Zandra Rains are women that I've known and supported for a long time. I love them dearly. I love their work. And so, yeah, so that's my bias. I went in knowing that this was a movie that my friends made, but I also went in feeling very, very nervous and skeptical because I have seen church history done on film many, many times, you know, and I didn't want this to be a legacy type film. Although, you know, I really enjoyed legacy when I was a kid and and an active, faithful youth in Mormonism. But 
having stories told to me the way that films like Legacy, for example, were, did a real disservice to me because what it did is it set up this framework where church history was always like inspiring and it was shiny and glossy and real, perfect. And so I just never fit because I wasn't any of those things. And here we have these stories of hardship with, you know, Mormon pioneers, but they always seem to overcome in a way that I just couldn't quite do. And what that did is it set up this idea that the church is perfect, the people aren't, right? And so there was something wrong with me. And it really set me up for a faith crisis. I was one of those people who didn't know Joseph Smith had plural wives until I was 25 and my world came crumbling down because of it. I, th- I thought I was well-read on history, but I was really well-read in sort of a Gerald Lund, uh, work in the glory type history, Kate Carter, Daughters of the Utah Pioneers history. I didn't know any of this other stuff. I just didn't know. Maybe it was told to me and it, I didn't understand. So I have become really territorial about this history. I've written about this on Facebook. Um, When I say territorial, I don't think that this history is mine. I don't think I own it. What I mean is I believe very strongly that this history belongs to me. It belongs to so many others. And I have had to really wrestle and fight to claim this history because when you question the history or when you just simply express dissatisfaction or, you know, any sort of negative emotion with one of the stories in our Mormon history, you were labeled as a heretic. And I really had to fight and muscle my way to claim this history as my own because it is my own. And so I go into this theater with uh, what I assumed were, you know, a ton of active Mormons. In fact, I know that I made some people uncomfortable there. There were people that sort of snubbed me or didn't want to be seen with me because, you know, I work for Sunstone and I podcast about polygamy, which is kind of controversial. And I sat there in this theater feeling a little sad because it was sort of that rift that I felt between, you know, in my Mormon faith, that community of you're not faithful enough. You don't deserve to be here. But I do because that history is mine as well. And so I'm just claiming that up front. I'm very territorial and this history matters a lot to me. And I want to say a thing um, on the opposite side. It kind of strikes me as odd that there's like this third way. I talk about this third way where you can be endeared to Mormonism like I am, uh, but but want a critical history want to ask questions, want to express doubts, and then all the faithful will label you as a heretic or an apostate. And then on the other side, where I want to talk about these women and 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 honor their faith, honor the fact that they had faith, uh, a lot of those who have lost their faith will call me a fool because, you know, they're like, well, the church is garbage anyway. It's not true. And I'm kind of in this middle space where It's not that I have to believe what my pioneer ancestors believe, but I can honor that they believe them. And on the one hand, I hold the space that they were like these really radical fanatics. And if I met them on the street today, I'd be like, those people are crazy. Those people sold everything they own to move to the desert. That's insane. But on the other hand, I know what it felt like to feel those things. And so it's really important to me that we kind of like tell this story in a way that honors both of those experiences, that it is a little bit insane and it is a little bit wonderful when you're, when you're in it. So I was nervous about this movie, really nervous about that. Uh, 
I think it would just, I'm not exaggerating. I think it would hurt me to see this story told poorly. It always hurts me when these stories are told poorly. That's where I get a little territorial, a little codependent, because of course, it's not just my history. It belongs to other people too. And how they express it is up to them. But these women that are behind this film, I trust them. You know, I've, I've done some hard work with them. I've, I've wrestled with some hard things. I've been with Tamu and Kirtland where we talked about hard stuff. Like Tamu, man, she doesn't pull punches. Uh, she gets attacked from ex-Mormons quite a bit because she's black and she works for the church and everyone's always like, oh, how can you do that? How can you be black and work for the church? Anyone that says that has not been following Tamu and Xander's work. These women... These women are the ones holding the feet to the fire. You won't hear anyone more critical of these ideas in the church than these women. And they do it and they do it in a way that's just like no excuses. And so I trust them to tell the story, but I didn't trust the church to uh, let them, if that makes sense. So I went in and Right out the gate, I was like, oh no, here we go. It was like a lot of really close-up shots of these women's faces, the actors' faces. They seem to be wearing a lot of makeup. It's a very glossy, like Mormon-y looking film. And I thought that that would detract from what I wanted to see, you know, because I have told these stories on my podcast a million times. I've thought about them a million times in my mind. I've been to the places where all these things took place. And it was just too shiny for me, you know? And so I thought, I'm going to hate this movie. And then I'm going to feel bad because my friends made it. But I just let myself lean into it. And, oh, man, it Melissa's writing is so raw and so uh, complex. She really, what she does is she pulls these dimensions, these different dimensions out of these characters. And the movie did that. Uh, it didn't let, um, the glossiness didn't shine over the integrity of who these characters were. This is a story about the Mormon movement and the larger impact, but it's also the story about interpersonal relationships and the cost for people involved who, you know, attach themselves to Joseph Smith. And it's also a story of the American West. It's a story of uh, racial and gender issues in the 19th century and in the 20 and 21st century. And to have all of those themes running through a movie like this, especially a movie made by the church, was something like I didn't, I wasn't prepared for. I, I it was such an emotional experience in that theater. I went through so many ranges of emotions. Um, and they were able to take one scene, really one, one snapshot of Mormon history and explore all these dynamics there. So one of the things that just like blew my mind is there's a conversation between Jane Manning James and um, Emma Hale Smith Bitterman, and they're talking about sort of Emma's feelings of grieving the death of her husband and they bring up plural wives and they don't bring it up in a glossy way. They allow Emma to be jealous. And, you know, I'm worried about that sometimes because I don't like to set up like this mean girl dichotomy where girls are, are bashing girls. And But I think it was true to the story. They did it in such a way that honored Emma uh, that her jealousy was contextualized. And so they mentioned the plural wives and I about jump out of my seat. I'm like, what? And I'm like fist pumping in the theater because this is the first time I had ever, ever, ever 
heard plural wives acknowledged, especially in a way that was like sold to, you know, Mormons. Um, it wasn't like an anti-Mormon like expose video or YouTube video or whatever. It, they just talked about it as if it were because it was. And then they kept talking about it. Like they didn't stop. It wasn't just like a throwaway mention. They kept talking about it. And I just sat there thinking, like I almost started to cry, like they're still talking, they're still talking about this. How are they still talking about this? And what, and so like, that's a personal um, thing for me, because of course this is a topic that's very interesting to me and I know it's not about me and I know it's not about polygamy, but that is something that resonated with me. And I will say that that tension that they explored and it was tense like they didn't gloss it over. They didn't try to make it okay. Uh, they do the same things with race and gender in that film. And it just blows my mind that they were able to do that. I think it's such an important thing. I really get, I get offended when film panders to Mormons. I mean, we want to keep Mormons in this perpetual state of childhood, right? Infantilize them. And, and, and that's what I was worried about when I saw all the glossy makeup. I was like, oh, here we go again. We have to dumb it down and water it down and make it pretty. So the Mormons, it'll hold their little attentions. And it's just so offensive to me. Like we, we need to stop doing that. And I think that this film is such a huge step in that direction because, uh, it let these women be complicated and messy. And I feel like it was a practice in letting um, people get more comfortable with being uncomfortable. I mean, here I am with this room of Mormons and there are these complex things and I didn't see anyone that left the theater like offended. Maybe, maybe there were, but this is how we should be telling our history. We should allow these characters in our history to be complicated because we are complicated. And... I think that that's one of the greatest gifts that this film gives our Mormon community is it allows for some complexity. So if you're going to go in as an ex-Mormon, you're going to go in and you're going to say, here's the things that got wrong in history. Here's, you know, Jane didn't say that then. And what about this? And where did that historical source come from? And you're going to say, oh, it's too, you know, uh, glossy or shiny. But I don't think you can say that it isn't complex. And I don't think you can say that it that it uh, strays from the integrity of who, how Jane experienced her Mormonism. Cause I think that that's what it captures the most. Um, and of course they do take historical liberties, but I don't think any that were so glaringly that it detracts from the story. Remember they have to tell like this expansive story in like one snapshot of time. And I think that they did that really well. Uh, there are a lot of things that historians will be familiar with. Lots of quotes um, that they take directly from the documents that we do have, which are very limited so that was really cool. If you are a faithful Mormon, um, you know, you are probably going to not like the rawness of it. I mean, they talk about sexual assault in this film. They talk about the church not being perfect. They talk, uh, they show racism in early Mormonism and, uh, yeah, they talk about polygamy. So things that you're not going to like, but again, this is something that we need to do. We need to practice being uncomfortable because the reality is the church history is messy and people are messy and you are messy and we need to stop pretending otherwise. So this film, in my mind, is a great bridge builder. I think it's something that ex-Mormons should go see. They should invite their family members who are Mormon to go see with them. Uh, I think that this is a good start. If you're looking for a, a way to like broach a conversation, this movie is going to do it. And I'm so thrilled about that because... 
not only does it honor these women and their entire story and the like essence of of their struggle and their relationship with Mormon Mormonism, I think this is just a really good bridge building film. So that is my long rambly critique, and I'm just really proud of my friends. Well, welcome to another edition of Mormon Expression. I'm your guest host, Tom, and today I'm also joined by Glenn Oslin, my one of my favorite active Mormons. What's up, Glenn? Hey, how you doing, Tom? Great, thanks. Thanks for joining me tonight. And today we have a special guest, Melissa Leilani Larson. Did I say your middle name right? You did, Gold Star. Leilani. <laughs> Melissa is a playwright and a screenwriter, and she's also directed and produced many plays, and she has quite, quite the resume in, uh, in theater. Um, and so we brought her on be- primarily because of one particular play, Little Happy Secrets, which, which is primarily about LDS culture, or I guess it's mostly based in a, in a Mormon kind of setting. Would that, would that be fair to say, Melissa? Uh huh. Actually, very specifically in a BYU setting. Yeah, BYU setting. Excellent. So, yep. So why don't we why don't we go ahead and get started? Give us a little bit of your background, Melissa. What um, maybe some of your church history background and and maybe what led you to be involved in theater. Well, um, I've been a lifelong member of the church. Um, my mother is from the Philippines, and she converted to um, to the church in her. I believe in her mid to late teens and then came to BYU Hawaii at the time it was church college of Hawaii. And that's where she met my dad. My dad is a lifelong member and um, I was born there. I was born in Hawaii and we lived there till I was about just before I turned 13. Um, And uh, my dad always wanted to work at BYU Provo and he had a job opportunity at that point. And so we came to Provo. Um, I went to high school and in Orem and I um, got my undergrad degree in English at BYU, emphasis in creative writing. And um, I'd always loved going to the theater, loved, I'm addicted to going to the movies. (laughs) Um, And so uh, just for kicks, for fun and, you know, kicks and giggles, I took a playwriting class my senior year at BYU from um, Elizabeth Hansen. And and there was a proverbial cliche light bulb that went off. Um, And it was I had a really hard time with it at first because it's a very different form. I had always planned on writing fiction, on writing novels, and playwriting was a completely different thing, Um, but it just felt like it was what I was supposed to be doing. And then, but then my senior year, it was my senior year, and I graduated. It's like, well, what am I supposed to do now? I found this new thing, but, and so I, um, I just started immersing myself in theater. I actually went back to BYU and started a master's in theater history, and then decided, um, because that wasn't a terminal degree that I should be, that I should get a terminal degree of Master of Fine Arts. And so I, um, was accepted to the Iowa Playwrights Workshop in Iowa City. And that's where I earned my MFA, um, finished that program in 2007. And so I've been for the past, oh dear, since undergrad finished. <laughs> so for the past, uh, 12 or 13 years, just been writing theater and film and been um yeah working on plays producing plays going to so many plays 
and it's just kind of become it's just kind of become my life. Theater is my life. And I, that's cliche, I know, but cliches start with a, with a crumb of truth. Very cool. So when you, were, when you were getting involved in this, you just decided that playwriting was going to be your dream. Did you originally intend to kind of have Mormonism as your theme or have a kind of a BYU LDS culture in some of your plays? Or At first, no. At first, I absolutely refused to. Um, <laughs> while I was a student at BYU, um, my goal was to, well, <laughs> my goal was to be famous. Uh, <laughs> and so, you know, to be rich and famous, to be a famous writer. And, uh, and it seemed to me um, that the Mormon market was a very much a, a, niche, a niche market, a niche market, and um, very small, very compact. And, um, and one of the personal difficulties that I have have always had with a lot of Mormon art is it seems to be very um, exclusive. It seems to be for Mormons and for Mormons only. And I wanted to aim for a wider audience than that. I wanted to, um, I wanted to be, you know, in a bigger pond. Right. <laughs> and, right. Uh, and, and so I kind of at first um, refused to write about it. Um, Little Happy Secrets, which is very much immersed in BYU culture and is about a BYU student. Um, actually, I wrote that play while I was in Iowa City. My, during the final year of my MFA program, it just kind of happened one night. And, um, and it, it, I came to a realization that, you know, um, one of the important things when you're writing is to, there's an adage, you, you should write what you know. And, um, and I've been around BYU for so much of my life, and I have been LDS all of my life. And it just seemed like there had to be a point when I, I would have to write about it and it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be fair to myself or to my faith or to the culture to not write about it at least, at least the one time. And so, um, I've kind of come done a 180 in that regard. Um, cause I, I think the play is really important. It's been important to me to write it personally. And so, um, but at first, yeah, at first I kind of, while I was at BYU, I refused to write for that audience. And I had to go somewhere else to discover that it was the right thing to do. When, when, when you wrote that, Melissa, did you feel like you were writing it to an audience or was it something you were just more writing for yourself? Um, when I first started it, I was writing it for myself. Yeah. And, then, um, and then it just kind of, uh, it grew. And, um, and at first I thought it was for a non-LDS audience that could be hopefully appreciated by an LDS audience. But now I think it's the other way around. I think it is for an LDS audience, but it can be appreciated and understood um, by a non LDS audience. Mm. Well, I, and I know, and I know that there might be a certain degree of our audience that may have not listened to the play and we'll be sure to put links up there. So I I'm hoping that we don't give too many spoiler <laughs> spoilers in our discussion. Oh, so no spoilers. <laughs> okay. So, if, so I encourage you if, if you haven't listened to the play and you listen to this, stop and go back and listen to the play or, or listen to it right after. It doesn't really matter. But there's, there's definitely, as far as the Little Happy Secrets play, which, which, I, which I'd really like to discuss, it's, it's quite controversial. And it, and it kind of takes an off-centered approach into the, into the LDS culture. Um, was that, I guess I'm, I guess I'm trying to understand what, what led you to to write about that. I mean, is that, is it based on true events? Is it based on just your own inspiration and imagination? 
Um, it is what I like to call a, and this is a made up term and it's a little cheesy, but I think it fits. It's a speculative autobiography. Okay. Um, and I, yeah, everyone's like, what does that even mean? Um, (laughs) but what I was thinking about when, um, when I was writing it was that, uh, one of the really important things you try to do when you're writing a play is you're trying to, or any, or any kind of character in any context is you're trying to get inside that character as much as possible you're trying to express them as honestly and wholly as possible so that they come across as a, as a real whole rounded person. And, um, and what's interesting to me about Claire, who's the protagonist in little happy secrets is that she and I have a lot in common and, and I kind of approach the story, um, the perspective from the perspective, if this was me, how would I deal with it? And so, so that's what I mean when I say it's, it's, speculative it's like it could be my story it's not my story if i had made if my life had gone that way it could have been my story does that make sense yeah it makes total sense you you have that's an amazing ability to be able to put yourself in that perspective with that much detail i was i was very impressed well it's the she's the one that has as a character it's been the most successful experiment i mean that's something you try to do with all of them and it's it's easier it's easiest to see those parallels when the character is contemporary, you know, and when you have some very obvious, I mean, you know, she loves Jane Austen. I love Jane Austen. There's some very obvious things that line up and then there are the less obvious things and the more subtle things. Um, and so she, it was, it just kind of was a really natural fit. And so it was really easy for me. Um, actually it started out easy and it ended up kind of hard because it's a very difficult, there are some very difficult things that she deals with in the piece. And so you just kind of have to take it really personally. Otherwise, you can't expect the audience to take it personally. Yeah, this this is interesting because how I even got introduced to this was a, a friend a friend emailed me this play, and I'm not a play guy, so <laughs> this this actually says a lot. I mean, he sent me this play and this audio play that you have on on uh, online. And I listened to it, and it's only about an, just over an hour long in length. Yeah, it's about an hour. I think it's an hour, two minutes. Yeah, and, and I'm listening to it. And at first, it was, I was <clears throat> a little back. But by the end of it, I mean, I was literally choked up. I was, I was amazed at how, how well it was, it was written. And, and to get a guy like me, who primarily likes sports, to enjoy an audio play like that was very impressive. So I think, I think you should be commended for at least getting me to connect with it. That was very well done. Great. Thank you. Thank you very much. It, Tom, you're sounding like Carter. Am I? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I just had to throw that in. <laughs> you know, I, we might have to talk a little Iowa football later, but it's right. all good. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I listened to it last night, and uh, I, I, I have to agree with what Tom said. I was really moved by it, and I, I went and I commented on your website, and I think I'm the only one on there now i was oh, surprised good. yeah i saw i saw like 347 at, at the bottom and i thought that's how many comments there had been so i thought mine would get buried on there but but uh no i th- no. i think it's just hits oh yeah yeah so, so I, if you'd like to call, thank you for leaving a comment that's exciting oh yeah no it was it was, it was great i really liked it well part, one of the worries i have like just like putting it out there as far as the audio play which was an ideas friend an, an ideas friend haha a friend's idea um also an ideas friend was you kind of wonder if anyone's gonna you know i mean i'm glad that you heard about it like someone sent you the link to it 
that it's getting around because it's really hard for me to just kind of sit back and wonder, you know, are people listening to it? Are there hits? Um, do people start it and stop it, you know, and decide, oh, this, you know, this sucks rocks and I'm going to go do something else. And so it's really, it's really heartening to hear that people are actually, you know, listening to it and, and are touched by it. Because it's just kind of, the scary thing about the web is it's so cool, it's so accessible, but then you just put stuff out there and you never know who's going to find it. Yeah, if you don't get any direct feedback, which, which, which is another thing that I'd, I'd like to ask about, whether you've had positive or negative feedback. But before we get to that, um, you know, I, I asked you previously if I could play just a small snippet. It's about a, it's about a minute and 25 seconds long, I think it is. And it's, this, is, uh, this is Claire that's talking a little bit about Mormons and, and secrets. And this is in the play Little Happy Secrets. Let me tell you something about Mormons. Latter-day Saints, if you prefer. I prefer. We are tremendously good at looking like we're keeping secrets, keeping things on the lowdown. We're so good that when the secret comes out, it's almost like a sin's been committed, like something dreadful has happened, even if the secret is innocent. That's what we do. That's why people think we're weird. Peculiar, as Brigham Young said. People assume we have something to hide. They always have. Sure, there are the sacred things, the things that get spat upon by those who don't understand. But there's a difference between sacred and secret. What secrets there are, we keep them from each other. How we're doing, what we're doing. It's like if something happens, you don't want the ward to find out. But then you have friends and neighbors and roommates and everyone whispers to everyone else and everyone guesses. That's the worst, when everyone guesses. Because then it all gets blown out of proportion, and, and sometimes you have to spill the beans just to stop people talking. But even then, they don't stop talking. It's like a switch has been flipped, and everyone knows there's a secret, so they treat it with care, though that doesn't stop them from telling each other they broke up, and uh, oh, he came home from his mission early, and she's bulimic. You don't want everyone in the ward to know the ins and outs of your life, so you try to keep them to yourself. And, and it's not like everyone's gossip crazy. It's more of a concern thing, you know? The ward, the congregation, it's like your extended family, especially when you're away at school. So naturally, everyone worries about everyone else. Though sometimes you can't help wishing that people would keep their worrying to themselves. Maybe we actually suck at keeping secrets. Uh, but see, this, me, this was a secret. The kind that is a constant weight getting dragged from here to there. And you wonder why no one's noticed it. No one's questioned it. <laughs> the best way to keep a secret, Latter-day Saint or otherwise, is to keep it. To not tell anyone. Pretty simple. I've kept this a secret. I haven't told anyone. Not till my sister and Brennan. Now you. I suppose it doesn't matter anymore. So Melissa, that 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 uh, that clip where where Claire is describing secrets and 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 how that kind of portrays in the LDS culture um, and how every Mormon just keeps secrets and that I think that's a very underlying message in the play and in the themes that are inside the play. Um, why don't you give us kind of a brief synopsis or background of this play and and some of your thoughts about that? Well, the play is about, um, oh, let me say really quickly that that clip um, features the actress, uh, her name is Laurel Sandberg Armstrong, okay. and she did the recording um, of the play um, 
as well as we did a staged version for a weekend in March of 2009. And she also played Claire in that um, staging and did a really wonderful job. Um, the play is about a young woman, Claire, uh, who is a uh, recently returned missionary, has come back to BYU um, to finish her studies and, um, and has a really, really good friend at BYU, her roommate, Brennan. And she um, wonders um, whether or not she is uh, romantically and or sexually attracted to, to Brennan. And so that's, that's what the play is, is about. And I understand that it's a, it is a controversial topic um, for members of the church and, and for considering recent events in the United States as a whole for um, non-LDS people as well. The whole, there's kind of a really interesting dichotomy happening right now in the country as far as the relationship between, um, between members of the homosexual community and, and members of the LDS church. Um, and I think that the idea of secrets, um, the difference for me between what is sacred and what is secret, what a lot of people outside of the LDS church don't understand that they think that there are secret, you know, secret crazy rituals happening in the temple and in the church on Sundays, you know, that there's all of these crazy wicked things that Mormons are doing behind closed doors. And that's really not what's happening at all. I mean, the difference is that what is happening is just so sacred that to speak of it in the wrong context does damage, you know, is a sign of disrespect to, um, to the faith, to, to God. And as faithful members of the church, we don't want to, to show that, um, that disrespect. Um, and I think it's really interesting that, uh, that in a lot of cultures, but specifically in the Mormon culture, we have this really interesting kind of almost obsession with secrets, with what's happening um, in our lives and in the lives of those around us. Like when you go to church, your ward is supposed to be like a family, you know? And when you even have, you will even have secrets between family members, um, both in your immediate family as well as on the ward family level. And so for me, Claire is a very quiet person. The fact that she's at a place where she's sharing a story that she's been holding inside of herself for so long um, with an audience that she can tell that secret now because no one in the audience is, she's not affiliated. You know, she doesn't know. Sometimes it's easier to tell a secret to a room full of strangers than to your best friend. And I think that's kind of one of the main ideas of what the play is about. Yeah, I think I think every, at least every Mormon is very... Uh, accustomed to the dangers of gossip. <laughs> so I think they can relate to that very well. Yeah, my my, well, uh, my younger brother uh, left the church when he was in high school, and uh, he, he's grown up maybe for the last 15 years or so. He and his wife always associate gossip with members of the church. And, and you know, I, I don't necessarily think that gossip is a characteristic of Mormons, but he sure does. He sees it that it's, way. It's interesting because I think that gossip is one of those interesting words. I mean, just if you just think about gossip being the way that information can travel so quickly, like wildfire, like the whole world will know something happening. I mean, it can be both a bad thing and a good thing in, in the Mormon culture. Because by the same token, what Claire is talking about in that monologue is that, you know, you could have a personal secret in your life 
um, that you don't want people to know about, but and then all of a sudden everybody knows about it. Um, at the same time, though, there can be that reaction where everybody knows about it. The ward can come together as a family and be really, really super supportive. I mean, the same thing happens when a tragedy happens. If someone, if a family member dies, all of a sudden the whole ward, ward knows about it, and the whole ward is working towards supporting the family that is suffering. And so there are both good and bad sides to that coin. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Well, let, let's let's talk a little bit about uh, the homosexual theme in the play. Um, I think it's interesting that uh, you were willing to, I don't know, broach this subject or this theme and and also kind of push it towards the LDS audience. Um, you had to have known going in that you were going to get mixed reactions, both positive and negative. Uh, what what exactly uh, were some of the reactions that you got that you got to hear from some of the audience? Well, yeah, when I, when I mentioned earlier, I was a little terrified to do it. I was a little terrified to do it in Provo. And then part of me was still saying it has to happen in Provo. If there's anywhere where it has to happen, it has to happen yeah. here. And um, I, was, I was worried about it. I was worried about people. I don't know. I mean, maybe I was thinking that I was, you know, it was going to be this huge deal and there were going to be people picketing outside. I don't know. My, I have a crazy imagination. Um, but what happened was when people actually came to the show, the response in general was really, really positive. I mean, I was terrified because um, I just didn't know how people were going to react to it. I mean, I had a hope that people were going to connect with Claire and understand her story and, um, and hopefully be a little bit more um, open-minded toward people dealing with the issue of same-sex attraction, which is the, the vocabulary that's used. And so, because um, at first, you know, we, had, we played the show for four nights, and, um, and things were really slow at first. It was like really close friends and family who were good and supportive and came to see it. Um, and then the word got out, and, and the Saturday matinee and the Saturday night show, and then we had a closing night show on a Monday night, and the Monday night show was filled to overflowing. Um, we had to add extra seats. Um, and uh, we got a standing ovation. And, um, and after each production, we had, a, we had a brief talkback session where we actually offered the audience the opportunity to ask questions, you know, um, if they wanted to stay to talk about it. And there were some, amazingly, some amazing personal reactions that I was just really touched by the fact that people were willing to share with me, I had, I had complete strangers come up to me and say, I'm just going to hug you. Is that okay? Wow. <laughs> and I said, all right, that's great. Please do. Um, <laughs> for weeks after the show happened, I received emails, both signed and anonymous from people who said, I can't believe you got it right. They said, this is my life. How did you know? This is what my life was. Um, some really pretty potent reactions. Um, that, that final Monday night, uh, one of the audience members was a mother whose daughter is dealing with the issue of same-sex attraction. And she got really emotional and she was very, very, um, it almost, the, the, the talkback session almost had a feeling for a little bit of a testimony meeting. It got to the, the spirit got to be really, really potent in the room. Hmm. And, um, and she was, I, I just had no idea. I didn't expect, I just had to hope that people would appreciate the story and not walk away from it and not say, here's a play dealing with homosexuality and there's no way that homosexuality and the LDS church can mix well. So I'm just going to turn and walk away. Um, and uh, we didn't have any walkouts. We didn't have any, I actually have not had, um, a really 
startlingly bad reaction that I've heard about anyway. I've just had some really positive run-ins with people who have enjoyed the piece or been touched by it. Were you, were you expecting uh, maybe some uh, some hate, hate mail or hate phone I was. Calls? I was expecting hate mail. I was expecting people to say, and people did ask me the question before seeing the show. They're like, why would you want to write about this? You've got to have other things you want to do than right. write about this. Um, and that's not necessarily, it's not necessarily hateful when they ask that question, but there's an honest curiosity. It's because I think they know that there's, you know, the controversy is there. And I'm not someone who says, ah, ha, ha, let's go controversy. Ha, ha. <laughs> let's get people. I want people to egg my house, see what gets people stirred up. Um, but I was surprised at how well it actually has gone over. Um, it actually, people tend to react, um, the general, I mean, not general in the sense of the most common response has been people saying, I didn't want to go, but I'm really glad that I did. Interesting. People are always asking me, they're like, so you have to be gay, right? Because you couldn't have written the story if you weren't gay. Um, and my answer to that is, well, it's called writing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's my yeah. answer to that. Well, I, I've got to say, listening to it, the the thing that I was impressed with the most were the times when Claire would go into her prayer, and mm-hmm. you know, you, you you mark the difference with with the, the the these and the thous. You know, we have this traditional kind of prayer speak, and you know, you, so you can see a, a, a definite marked difference in the dialogue, but but the, also the attitude that she has. It's very real. I mean, it, it's it's very realistic having you know been through this experience of being a Mormon, and you always have this in, or at least with me, there's this internal dialogue with a heavenly Father that's really probing and questioning and self-correcting, and you know it's like the personification of guilt <laughs> in in some mm-hmm. senses. And I just thought that was brilliant. Heavenly Father. Make me stronger. Help me endure. Show me that thou lovest me, that I'm worth something to thee. Heavenly Father, I'm trying to be good. I think I'm good. Why this? Is it even a sin to wonder, to care, to want? That's where the sin comes in, doesn't it? The wanting. The fact that I want something I can never have. Well, I'm not the one that put her there for the wanting. You know what I'm saying? Forgive me, Father, for my selfishness. I don't know how I turned this to be about me. I didn't mean for that to happen. What were you, what were you trying to accomplish with that prayer? Were, were you trying to say anything other than just that this is how she's dealing with this issue? Well, I think that there's, um, there have been so many plays that have been, you know, coming out plays. Mm -hmm. Um, and the vast majority of them are written by guys about guys, about, about gay men coming out of the closet. And usually on the vast majority, um, of plays dealing with, um, a gay man coming out, if, if the LDS church is involved in that story, he's going to leave the church. You just kind of know that that's what's going to happen in the play. And, um, and I got really tired of that. Um, well, A, because there are so many of them. 
I mean, I'm sorry, you know, I'm like, let's, let's write about something else. Mm-hmm. Um, and B, because I didn't wholly believe that that was the case. I mean, if you are raised in the church, like I've been raised in the church, if you have a testimony, it's really hard to just turn it off. You know, it kind of seeps into everything of what you are and who you are. It influences your decisions. It influences who you hang out with and who you want to be and the choices that you make as it should, you know, that's what a good testimony is to help you, you know, eventually point your life to being like Christ. And, um, and so for me, I just wanted to be as much as possible in every aspect with the play as honest as possible. Mm-hmm. I didn't want, I didn't want to just say, I prayed about it. Cause, um, from a dramatic standpoint, that's really passive. Right. Nothing's happening, yeah. you know? And then also, um, I wanted a prayer because prayer for me is a really personal, that's what it is. It's a personal conversation. It's a dialogue with the heavenly father. And so I, I wanted to be as honest and true to that as possible. And, um, and part of it was just like, at first I was a little bit anxious about it. Some of those scenes just kind of came out and I looked at them in the rewriting process and was like, mm, it's going to get me in trouble. <laughs> um, but then I just, it didn't seem right to take it out. And so I had to leave those there because they do seem to me like some of the, the moments when Claire lays her soul the most bare. And it should be that way when you, when you're on your knees and talking to God, that's the way it should be. You know, he's the one that you shouldn't be keeping secrets from. And, uh, yeah. Did, did that answer the question or did I kind of like beat around that bush? (laughs) That was awesome. Yeah. That was great. One of, one of my personal favorites as we're talking about favorite parts in the play, um, is when Claire tries to come out to her sister and she explains that, and and her sister reacts. I don't, I don't know how to explain it, poorly, maybe, mm-hmm. very negatively it, it, originally. Um, right. That that to me uh, felt very real and and it heart heartbreakingly real, I guess I would say. Um, and when you said that there were have been some of the audience members have come up and said that you nailed it. How how did you describe my experience? Um, have you gotten any feedback that uh, that your play that there are people that are actually living through this life and and do you feel a deep connection to um, people that are really struggling with homosexual feelings inside the church? Um, I do. I do have a connection with it. I don't think. Um, I think it's it's unfortunately something that uh, people want to just assume is taboo. Like if someone is dealing with that issue. If someone is dealing with, you know, no matter how, excuse me, how spiritually um, on top of things the person is, if they were to say, I'm dealing with same-sex attraction, then there are a lot of people who just want to automatically turn the other way and, and just kind of assume that that person is doing something wrong. And I think there's actually a portion in the play where that's what, um, actually, I think it is the scene with Natalie, with her sister, where Claire says, I'm doing everything I'm supposed to be doing. I just feel differently. And, uh, and I think it's really, it's, I mean, and I don't want to trivialize homosexuality. I don't want to say that it's, it's a trial. Um, but some people define it as a trial. Um, but it's something that certain people are dealing with. Other people are dealing with like Natalie is dealing with, you know, 
with personal loss in her life. Like people deal with um, losing people. People deal with getting their hearts broken. People deal with economic strife. You know, everyone has a different um, trial that is supposed to make them stronger, make them a better person. And, and, um, and I think that we in the LDS culture um, need to remember that Latter-day Saints dealing with same-sex attraction are Latter-day Saints. We need to be compassionate toward them, just like we're compassionate toward everyone else. We can't expect them to return that to us, to be understanding of us and what we're feeling if we're not um, reciprocating that. And so um, uh, the, the difficulty with Natalie, she was um, the sister, is I didn't want her to be completely homophobic. Um, I wanted her reaction to be kind of like a gut instinctual reaction that she kind of grows out of. And I hope that comes across in the play. But um, so I, I wanted Natalie to be um, to have that difficulty that Claire was worried about, you know, worried about that acceptance. And if she's having that difficulty within her family, um, I also tried to establish that she and, and she and Natalie aren't super close to begin with. So if there's not a creation of a rift. It's just, you know, one more thing about them that's different. And so, um, cause I think that that's Natalie kind of represents the way that a lot of, I think a lot of LDS people who have never had an interaction with a gay person, um, might react if someone in their family said, I think I'm gay. Yeah. Sometimes I wonder, I mean, it, it's also kind of timely that your play came out a little after that whole Prop 8 thing and and mm-hmm. the, this and the same-sex attraction or homosexuality is actually a very touchy subject within within the LDS church membership uh, recently. Yeah, it really is. Yeah, and so it, it's it's actually pretty timely that uh, you wrote this play. I, I, I assume that the Prop 8 thing didn't really have much to do with your um, intention of writing the play, right? No, the, the play has been, it was bouncing around in my head a lot. It actually started as a film way back, way, way, way back, um, an idea for a film in like 2002. Um, and, and the beginning, the seed of the character, Claire was there, but the film, the script, it was bad. It was really bad. I didn't, <laughs> it was just embarrassing. And so I just put it in a drawer and I put it away. And, uh, and I came back to it again um, when I was... I needed to write a one act um, for a special topics class um, in Iowa, and that was in the spring of 2007. So it was it was drafted completely before Prop 8 happened. Maybe it's a little bit uh, prophetic, maybe. Anyway, but uh, so what are some of the other plays? I mean, is this the only LDS theme play that you've done, or that you're working on, or are there other ones? Um, this is probably the only one that is directly LDS in, in nature and in tone and in, you know, dealing with a lot of, um, straight up LDS doctrine, um, as an integral part of the story. I do have, I do have an interest in writing about spirituality. Um, and so I think I do have other plays that have LDSness <laughs> kind of woven into them. But this is the only one, Little Happy Secrets is the only one that is very, is quite blatantly LDS. I have a play called Martyr's Crossing, um, which tells the story of Joan of Arc from the perspective of the two voices who talk to her 
Um, they're the voices of, she supposedly heard St. Catherine and St. Margaret. And, uh, and it definitely, that play definitely has an LDS spin on it. The theology is very, very Mormon, but it's not presented necessarily as a Mormon play. Um, I do have a, I have a play, the play I wrote for my thesis for grad school was, uh, 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 magical realism comedy called, uh, the church of St. Pinky at Katy, Texas. And uh, it's about a woman who has the power. She can heal by laying out of hands, but she is not a religious person. Um, and it's how she deals with miracles and how she deals with, uh, with spirituality at the same time that she kind of refuses it in, uh, refuses to allow it into her life. And that play actually has, she has a very good friend, a neighbor, um, who is, uh, is a young Mormon housewife. Um, so I have, I have little things like that, that kind of show up here and there. Um, and I, I, I write a lot about religion is, is a, is a theme in a lot of my plays, but this is probably the only one that is straight up. Hey, look at me. I'm Mormon. Do, do you, do you have these published Melissa? I've had a lot of productions at the academic level at universities. Um, Martyrs Crossing is going to get produced this upcoming year at a little community theater in Washington State, um, and it has had a it had a reading, um, an equity actor reading, at the Workshop Theater in New York City um, two summers ago. Um, usually with plays, there's a certain level of production. It's it's got to be really well produced a lot, uh, very popular in the production circuit before it gets published. Martyrs Crossing is actually getting published in a collection of um lds plays called saints on stage this coming year um i believe from zara hemla books and then uh little happy secrets is getting published as part of a collection um of short plays that were produced by the new play project in provo they're wonderful publishing houses but they're both really small mm-hmm. well i know i know originally one of one of the things one of the main reasons why i i wanted you to come on to our show today was to help promote um this fundraising campaign that you're having for little happy secrets to hopefully raise enough funds to put it on a stage in Salt Lake city. Is that right? That's correct. Yes. Um, my friend Dave Mortensen, who is, a um, he's a, he's a, a theater producer and, uh, he and I worked together on a show I did last summer called standing still standing. Um, which is a, I don't know, I guess a non-traditional romantic comedy. And he, um, we had a really good working relationship and he came to see the production we did of Little Happy Secrets last, last spring. And, um, and he and I have talked about trying to get it out to a wider audience. Um, that it was great that we did it in Provo, but wouldn't we, it'd be great if we could do it in Salt Lake? Wouldn't it be great if we could do it in California? Wouldn't it be great if we could do it, you know, all sorts of places. And Dave is, um, he's very ambitious. Um, and, and he's got, you know, he's got big plans. Um, and he, uh, and he came to me with this idea, this website that he found called kickstarter.com. And Kickstarter is this fabulous program where you can um, basically create your idea and you pitch it to whoever visits the Kickstarter website and they have the opportunity to pledge. And if you, what you do is when you pitch your project, you set it up with a, you kind of have a goal that you want to meet by a certain day that we're going to try to make. Our goal is to make $4,500 by August 1st. Um, and that $4,500 will go completely toward production costs, um, for doing little happy secrets in the, 
um, Rose Wagner Performing Arts Center in Salt Lake City next February is what we would like to do. And so, um, and so what it is, is you can, uh, the way the program is set up is you can pit, you can make a donation at any level from anywhere from a dollar to a thousand dollars emphasis on the thousand dollars. <laughs> um, and, uh, and we have rewards that we give at certain levels. Like I think if you do a $50 pledge, um, I will autograph a soft copy, a soft back copy of the play for you. Hey, Hey, I think if you do a $500 pledge, you and I get to go to dinner. It's very exciting. Um, and so there are like rewards and you can make, and you know, we're, we're giving away tickets. We're hoping to have an opening night gala on the, when the show opens and, um, or you can just, uh, you can just donate. You don't have to take the prize if you don't want to. Um, but the, the, the interesting catch with Kickstarter is that nobody's pledge actually gets cashed. The money doesn't actually get collected unless we meet or surpass the goal. So we don't actually, the project, if we don't make, if out of the $4,500, we make $44.99 by August 1st, the project doesn't happen. I see. Well, we'll we'll be sure to put that link up on our website at mormonexpression.com and hopefully some of our audience members. That would be fantastic. Would, uh, will contribute to that because I think it'd be really cool and exciting to see that on the stage in Salt Lake. That'd be cool. And, so, and our hope is to, is to, if we do the Salt Lake production, is to get some people involved, not just to transplant the Provo show to Salt Lake, but, you know, to get, to get together some people, maybe some LDS folks and maybe some non-LDS folks together to put the show up and make it, you know, just to try to make it as professional and just as great a show as we can possibly make it. So just as a, just because I'm kind of new to the play scene, I mean, I've seen... Uh, what's that? Les Miserables? Is that a play or is that like an opera? What would you? Consider? It's a. It's. I would call it an operetta, but a lot of people would say it's a musical. Yeah, it's musical theater. All right, I'm I'm new to this scene, so sorry. You but. are totally <laughs> not a problem. You're totally welcome. I hope you stay a while. But I was thinking about this. Um, you know, to hear your passion in in writing plays and and getting this message from out of your brain and out of your heart and onto a stage. But what, what's that feeling like of something that's deep inside you and then being able to go through that extensive creative process, seeing it on stage and being and watching it being performed and then hearing the audience reaction? What's that like? It is an incredible high and it doesn't have, you know, icky side effects. So, uh, <laughs> like, you know, my, cause my, my drug experience is varied and wide. Um, <laughs> gentlemen that was a joke all right <laughs> yeah. the, um <laughs> but it's it's yeah it's an incredible it's an incredible rush because i mean if you think about it there's so much work that goes into putting up a show i mean i don't think a lot of people when they go to the movies when you go see a movie and you just say oh my gosh that was the worst that was a waste of two hours of my life right. if it's a bad movie it's actually a waste of hundreds of hours of a lot of people's lives <laughs> um and, and that's the way, like, to put a show up is, you know, you have to get together a design team. You have to get together some really fabulous actors. You have to do, you know, there's a lot of preparation. You've got six weeks of rehearsal. Um, I don't know how many hours it took me to write the thing. You know, there's a lot of stuff that builds up to this place. And, and when it actually happens, that feeling, it's almost, yeah, it's almost a kind of ecstasy. It's a pretty amazing feeling because you... 
I just turn around and do it again. <laughs> I will go through all of that again and do it all over again because that feeling is such, it's just such a pure high to be able to say, this is the art that I have and I'm giving it to people. And when people react to it and when they, um, sometimes even when they react poorly to it, you know, it's still, there's a reaction. There's an emotional reaction. Even if people say your play made me so angry, I'm like that's great. There's an emotional thing happening. Say, bring it, bring it on. Um, you can't, that feeling can't be recreated by anything else. I mean, maybe a really good cheeseburger for about three minutes, you know? <laughs> yeah. but um, maybe, and that it has to be, it has to be a really, really good cheeseburger. But that, <laughs> yeah. that high is just so incredible that, yeah, I mean, I've, I've got eight plays that have been produced in some form and I'm hoping to have more because you just, that feeling doesn't come from anything else. Um, and it just kind of, it's, cause it has to be, it has to be a really good play is a conversation between the playwright and the actor and the audience. It's, it has to be, there's something about it being live that it's going through all of you at the same time. And yeah, you just can't, there's no other way to recreate that feeling than to have it happen. And it's totally worth all of the stuff, all of the crap you have to walk through, all of the work you have to do, all of the hours pacing around, worrying whether or not anyone's going to come, all of those things, because that feeling is just pretty fantastic. Yeah, imagine so. I mean, my, I, I made I made I quote I made my wife listen to this play the little happy secrets and uh she's like now let me get this straight tom you're 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 like you like plays now <laughs> and I, and I was like yeah it's weird because originally I took her to that Les Mis I think it was while we were still dating or engaged you know to try to seal the deal <laughs> like so see, I, I, cultured yeah, I, I can I can try. I'm an open minded guy. You can come to a football game with me. I'll go to a play or an operetta with you. But uh it's it's actually it's kind of fun to um listen to a play and she and it kinda of gets her pretty excited, like, hey, all right. So if if it just if it just so happens to be your play, Melissa, the little happy secrets, then that's something. <laughs> I, I I that's my favorite thing ever. <laughs> we can do the show and your wife can come and be happy i'll be so happy <laughs> yeah me too <laughs> but uh well I've, I've got i've got a burning question that you might hate oh okay but yeah bring it bring <laughs> it it's already <laughs> yeah in in the sequel to little happy secrets <laughs> hey, is this where, a spoiler alert spoiler alert <laughs> yeah yeah uh, try, trying not to make it a spoiler alert but where where is Claire? What what kind of a is Claire still in the church? Is she out of the church? Is what what kind of life is Claire living? Claire, I see Claire. Actually, I don't know if it's necessarily in the sequel, but I see her at the beginning of the play, uh, five to maybe five or six or seven years after the events have happened. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't think she's left the church. I don't think she will ever leave the church. Um, I think that that she is, um, I think she's, I think she's happy. I think she's well. Um, I don't think she is whole, but I think she's found a way to, to make her life as complete as she can with what she has. Has she found, has she found love or is she living, (laughs) living alone with cats? 
<laughs> now we've delved into a whole delved into a whole new level of cliche. Yeah. Um, I I think that she's alone, but that she is very close with her family. I don't think she's lonely. Um, and I don't, I didn't see her in my mind having cats. No, (laughs) (laughs) um, she's a reader. She's into literature. I see her eventually someday, maybe, um, maybe writing, but she reads a lot. Um, and, uh, and she's found some kind of a, she's found some kind of a job where she's able to, to take her passion for books, for literature and, and build her life around that. And, um, and so I think she's, I think she's pretty content is a good word for it, but no, no cats. <laughs> okay. Well, since we're asking questions about the play, maybe we'll edit this out because of spoilers, but so Brent Brennan, uh-huh. um, when she, uh, puts that little note in the wedding invitation, uh-huh. <laughs> I, cause I'm still, I still wonder about that. Was that legit? I mean, was that, was, was she, was she trying to reach out? I mean, does she have her own conflict? Well, I, what I wanted to do with the play and let's, let's see if we can do this spoiler free. Let's see if we can do the spoiler. Yeah, free. Maybe okay. we'll have to cut that, yeah. We might have to cut this out. I don't know. <laughs> but what I was trying to do with the play was I wanted it to be, there are a couple of things that from a dramatic perspective, um, I was trying to achieve with it. One of those is that, um, if you look at the play on the page, like if you see it printed out, there are only two places where there's where there are stage directions, where there's actually um, stage directions are where the playwright tells the actor and the directors, this is the action that I want to have happen during this scene. And what I tried to do with this play was make all of the action clear through the dialogue mm-hmm. and say, because you could tell from the conversation what is happening in the scene. That was a goal that I had. And so there's two places, um, there are only two places in the whole play where I actually specifically say, these are the stage directions. This is what is supposed to be happening action wise. One of the other things I tried to do was I wanted to make the play a little ambiguous in the way it was presented so that one director could make some really interesting choices that would be very different from what another director chose to do. And with the character of Brennan, um, I think it's very clear in the play who Claire is and what Claire wants and how Claire feels. Right. And what I wanted to do with Brennan is make her a little bit more open to interpretation. And I actually think there are several different ways that she could be played. And, um, and the scene that you're talking about, the moment that Brennan's at, at the very end of the show, I think could go a number of different ways. And I did that on purpose. So. Yeah. And I, and I thought you did that really well uh, too. Yeah. It, it, you know, we, we've mentioned the word cliche <laughs> a couple times uh, in the last hour we've been talking. And, and I, I think the, the, the Mormon lifestyle and, and those expectations, especially when you're at BYU, you, you, it, it, it's just one big cliche or maybe several small cliches one after another. And, and I kind of saw that in, in the way that you presented her relation, Bren, Brennan's relationship with uh, Carter, that, mm-hmm. you know, they, they had these things that they kind of were interested in together, but they had all these other things, you know, where, where are they going to live? What are they going to do? What, what kind of interest did they really have together? But they've got the, uh, you know, the, the wedding announcement on the nice paper, and you know the the the, the pictures, and you know everything yeah, kind of fits the cultural <laughs> expectations or, or these cliches. And so that that moment that that Tom's asking about, you know, that you said is open for interpretation, 
you know, it, it could be that she's saying, I, I don't want to be in this cliche, you know? Yeah. That's definitely one of the possibilities. Yeah. And, and there, there are other possibilities, the possibility that she says, okay, maybe this is spoiler territory now, yeah. but there's the possibility that she is saying, um, yes, I feel the same way. Yeah. Come and stop. Yeah. There's the possibility that she's saying, you are my best friend and I can't do this without you. There's the possibility that she is saying, you were totally right. This is all happening way, way, way too fast. Yeah. And so there's a lot of different ways that it could, that it could happen. Is it, is it weird, Melissa, when, when you hear guys relating to this story? Because even I was a little taken back, like, am I connecting with a, a woman that has been lesbian issues? This is weird. Well, you, you're, you're a real guy, Tom. I, I'm the kind of guy that cries at Toy Story. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. Oh, don't make me laugh. I'll cough. Um, <coughs> the, uh, I, it, that's an interesting question because it was funny because when, like those talkback sessions I mentioned, it was the, it was, there was always a girl who wanted to ask about the stop me please. And there was always a guy who wanted to know why he was supposed to relate to a play about girls. Um, which is, I know the, not the context that you're asking the question in. And I, cause I, I don't think it's weird. I think, I think it's, I think what I'm hoping makes the play universal is that it's specific. Um, because unfortunately with, with this idea of the coming out play with this idea of a play that's dealing with a young person or I don't know, age doesn't matter. I'm being ageist with a person leaving the church because of their sexual orientation. Um, there are so many plays where like what I was saying about before is it's a guy coming out of the closet and he leaves the church. Um, that story, because there are so many of them, that story has become cliche. Um, you know, just the character of a gay man has become cliche. You know, you expect him to be effeminate in his movements, to speak in a certain tone, to like Broadway musicals, to, you know, be a fan of Barbara Streisand. There are all of these little cliches that we assign to him. Right. And, uh, and I actually think that one of the things that I was hoping with this story, because firstly, there aren't a super lot of stories dealing with um, women dealing with this issue. And I know that there are women dealing with this issue in the LDS church. Yes. Um, but also, because it's a new spin on the old story, it's easier, I hope, to click into the universal, um, universalness, the universality, that's it. That's hey. what I'm looking for, of it, to make it that you can relate to it and, and get connected to it, despite the fact that it's a woman. It would be actually very, very challenging to try to write the male counterparts for this story because there are so many attempts at that that have already taken place. Well, and I and I love the the character Carter. I mean, I was like, that's cool. When he says, uh, <laughs> "I got two words that'll put a smile on your face: cold stone." That was <laughs> that was so Utah County. I laughed out loud. <laughs> I'm so glad. I'm so glad. And the fact that he's like, "Hey, I got Thundercats on DVD." Yeah, Thundercats. That was great too. <laughs> so it's funny. I'm glad. I'm glad you like Carter because that's a difficulty. I've had people tell me Carter is two dimensional, and I'm like, well. It's it's all you're seeing the whole thing. It's filtered through Claire's brain. Yeah, Claire definitely. wants you to think that he's two dimensional. Right. You know, she wants you to try to not like him. And so I think he is really likable, but it's not. Is he marriage material? From what you see in the play, no. 
right. which is also, you know, it's also a commentary on people getting married way too fast at BYU. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so that's another cultural issue, but that's, you know, hey, woo, that's its own conversation. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, but not, I'm, I like Carter. I think Carter's cute. I like Carter's name. I like they go to Burger Supreme, but then, you know. <laughs> yeah, I, I could relate because even my wife calls me two, two-dimensional all the time, so. <laughs> do, do you drive a Lincoln Navigator? No. <laughs> I guess that's where I separate, so, yeah. Yeah, that's okay. Because um, I, I also wanted to play around with the idea that Brennan is, like, she wants to be a liberal, you know, she wants to be... She wants to be a Democrat because no, everybody else is a Republican. Right. But she's actually in a situation that requires her to be liberal, not, not, in a, not from a political perspective, but literally in your thinking. She needs to be liberal and open-minded. Um, she has difficulty with that. So um, also just because I love the West Wing, too. There's, see, there's just a lot of stuff in there that's just me. I, hey, I like that. Let's put it in a play. Okay. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Very cool. Well, if if you were ever comfortable like s- sending some of the stuff that you've written, I, I'd love to read it. it like <laughs> your your thesis, that play, uh, I forget the, the the Church of Pinky or whatever it was. That sounded <laughs> that sounded uh, really interesting. Oh yeah, cool. I can send you that one. I'm trying to. Um, I used to write mainly like historical plays, like things set in the Joan of Arc play. I also have a play that deals with Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn. Um, you know, like dealing with heightened language period pieces, but I'm trying to write more contemporary modern stuff. And, uh, and Pinky is a, it's the church of St. Pinky at Katy, Texas. Um, it's in an early place. I've got some stuff that I got to work out with it, but yeah, if you want to read it, sure. I'd love to love to. Yeah. <laughs> Quit smoozing the guest, Glenn. Come no, on. I'm just, I, I'm, I love this stuff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm so glad. I'm glad. Yeah. I think it's yeah. And I that was when I wanted to have a really I wanted to have a really super long title. See, yeah. sometimes like the the logic behind writing stuff like makes no sense at all. It really doesn't. I mean, like wouldn't it be cool if I had a play called The Church of St. Pinky at Katy, Texas? Yeah. That was before, you know, I had no story at all. I was just like, that's just a really cool title. It's cute. <laughs> it is a really cool title. Yeah. Yeah. So titles are hard for me. I have a hard time with titles. I really am pleased. Little Happy Secrets is like, it's a killer title, and that doesn't happen very often for me. Yeah. And it was just kind of like, ooh. It came out, it didn't have a super lot of drafts, and it had a fantastic title right away. And I was like, oh, this is one of those things I really can't take credit for. Okay. <laughs> cool. cool. Well, it looks, looks like we uh, are just about out of time. Um, Melissa, I commend you for writing such a well-done play, uh, getting a sports guy like me to listen to it and enjoy it. I'm looking forward to you getting enough money to getting that on the stage in Salt Lake City so I can be in the audience and participating in the standing ovation. I think that'll be great. Fantastic. Thank you. Um, thank you for joining us on the show. Do you have any last words, you, Glenn? No, I just, same thing, loved it. It was fantastic. Thank you. Thank you very much. I um can I make one less one less little plug? Absolutely. I have another show that's happening actually at BYU um coming up this March. Um I've written a stage adaptation of Jane Austen's novel Persuasion. Um and BYU is gonna be producing it in the Pardo Theater in March of next year. Excellent. So yeah. So that just recently became official, so I'm looking forward to that. And so if folks um 
want to go see it. I think it's going to be a good show. Cool. Well, thanks. All right. And hopefully, and- yeah, hopefully a little happy was going to happen as well. And, you know, I'll just cross my fingers now and leave them crossed until February. <laughs> Very cool. All right. And thanks again for joining us. The discussion continues at uh, mormonexpression.com where does we'll it have really, the links. Does it really continue there, Tom? to getting little happy secrets on the on the stage in Salt Lake City. But does City the discussion really continue? Catch, it? Uh, Melissa's other projects that she's doing. This is old and stuff, Tom. And where you it's nine years the, old. The play. And you can always mail, uh, mail us at mail at mormonexpression.com. No one's going to answer those happy. mails. Thank you those, very much. Those mails aren't going to get answered, Tom. And uh, Easter eggs. Yeah, the Mormon Expression days. It was Tom's idea to do Easter eggs. I should have, I should have done the whole interview like this. That would have been fun. <laughs> hey, friends, let's talk about... Anyway. <laughs> and I think I'm going to edit out the comment that I made about me commenting on your website. Because as I was saying it, I started thinking, actually, this sounds like it could almost be a slam. Like, you've only got oh. one comment up on the site. I didn't want to... <laughs> so I, I got a little self-conscious as I was saying that. Like, oh. It's funny because I've, like, started blogging recently, and I think blogging is really cool, but then, like, I'm like, come on, people, read my blog. Come on, comment. Right, right, comment, right. Comment. Yeah, yeah. Um, I appreciate the slam, though. I'm going to have to go check out your... <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> and anytime. Anytime. I'm great. <laughs> I, I'm great at inadvertently slamming the uh, speculative autobiographers. and see this is good because now my head will stay small right (laughs) it's all good if i were to tell you where it began i don't think i could actually i don't think i could put a mark on it It, as easy as that well maybe i (laughs) sorry i can be a little indecisive at times if i were to put a mark on it if i were to declare to the world this is the point this is the genesis the beginning of everything you know pointing with one of those foam finger things you get at football games in states where football matters more than life itself then i would say it was the day bren moved into sky house we hadn't seen each other in almost two years since i went on my mission and she went on hers and we had plotted to live together when we both came back to school who knew that seeing her again Seeing her so tan and healthy after 18 months in the Australian sunshine would hit me the way it did. It literally took my breath away. That's a phrase people use all the time. And you wonder where it comes from, what it means, until it happens to you. Until it happens and just like that your lungs have sharp edges and it hurts to inhale or exhale and your throat constricts like you're choking but there's nothing to choke on. This all happens in a split second when you shudder a little in your step and take a moment to blink back to reality. Nope. You are still alive. Your heart didn't really burst just now. Oh my gosh, Claire? Bren? Oh wow, this is like... It's been ages. Literally. How was Hamburg? Hamburg. Long A. Pretend there's an H in there, too. Uh, it was great. Germany was great. I suppose I know that. I mean, from your letters, of course. Your letters were so great. I haven't been the best about that. Just made me thrill a little more when a letter did come. I've missed you. Freeze frame. Right there. This is it. This is it. Brennan, standing on the stoop. Our stoop. Holding A&E's Pride and Prejudice five-volume set with a box on the walkway next to her containing the complete works of Colin Firth. This is the moment. God, why does it hurt like this? Nothing should hurt like this. Like open-heart surgery. 
but you shouldn't know what that feels like to get your ribcage cracked open because you're under, unconscious on a metal slab. This, this moment should be good, glorious, but I feel like my chest is going to explode when she says, I've missed you too. Pain and joy all at once, inexplicably connected. She did miss me. Like a good friend should. <laughs> good friend? Who am I kidding? Best friend. The first few months of my mission weren't hard because of what I was doing, though learning the language kicked my butt most of the time I was in Germany. I missed Brennan so much that I thought I needed her more than my family. I mean, we'd gone from being inseparable to living in different time zones, different hemispheres. It was hard to deal. I seriously considered going home more than once. I mean, I didn't have anyone to talk to, not really talk to. Well, except God. And he doesn't talk back in the traditional sense, not to me at least. He communicates in feelings, in warmth, in assurance. But sometimes you ask a question and you want a direct answer. And not just direct, but imperfect, human, beautiful. But I didn't go home because Brennan wasn't there anyway. So I worked because there was nothing else to do. I worked harder than I ever had in my life. You look really good. Stop it. No, really amazing. I love it in Perth. It's gorgeous. I'm saving up to go back. You just got home. What can I say? I fell in love. You'll have to come visit. You're moving to Australia. It was a joke, Claire. I, I didn't mean it. Right. Sorry. A joke. My bad. I just had the best 18 months of my life is all. Really? The best? Wasn't it for you? I, I don't know. I guess. The house is in better shape than I expected. Yeah. Heidi and company took good care of it. Where is Heidi? Uh, graduating. Elementary education. Uh, besides, she's getting married in November. November? Who wants to get married in November? Happy Thanksgiving and welcome to our receiving line. No time at all for a honeymoon. She's done with school, but he's got something like three years left. They're going to do the honeymoon thing at Christmas. That sucks. Why not put off the wedding till Christmas so that you can do it right? You're just going to run out of time over Thanksgiving. I don't know. They just want to shag. It's ridiculous. I swear people get married for all the wrong reasons. Not all people. Well, fine, but most of them. Don't you remember, what's her name? Our Ukrainian roommate sophomore year? Sonia. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, it is. No, no, that's not right. Are you sure? Yeah, she was a convert and her name was Sonia. Okay, fine. It was Sonia. The point is, do you remember that weekend that she and her fiancé drove up to Wendover for the weekend, got married, did it, and then got the marriage annulled? <laughs> they didn't even stay together after that. She ended up marrying someone else. I mean, <laughs> that's a lot of trouble for an orgasm, don't you think? Bren is always good at talking about things you just shouldn't talk about. Not good in the sense of tact. She'll just talk about it anyway. Are you ever tempted to do that? What? Have a flash wedding. Just to do it. No. Stop being so good. Of course you've thought about it. I'm not good. There's plenty of things that I... think about. Like? I look at her for a minute. I think I could tell her now. I could tell her why my mission had seemed eternal... I felt a tremendous guilt teaching people when my mind was elsewhere. My heart... I kind of want the room in the back, but I'll let you pick. And she rolls her eyes at me and smiles like only she can. And she takes her pride and prejudice up the steps and into the house. I should follow. I should cover. I should try to make it look like nothing's wrong. But I sit on the step and let a wave wash over me. Relief? Regret? Why am I being so melodramatic? Let me tell you something about Mormons. Latter-day Saints, if you prefer. I prefer. We are tremendously good at looking like we're keeping secrets. 
keeping things on the lowdown. We're so good that when the secret comes out, it's almost like a sin's been committed, like something dreadful has happened even if the secret is innocent. That's what we do. That's why people think we're weird. Peculiar, as Brigham Young said. People assume we have something to hide. They always have. Sure, there are the sacred things, the things that get spat upon by those who don't understand. But there's a difference between sacred and secret. What secrets there are, we keep them from each other. How we're doing, what we're doing. It's like if something happens, you don't want the ward to find out. But then you have friends and neighbors and roommates and everyone whispers to everyone else and everyone guesses. That's the worst, when everyone guesses. Because then it all gets blown out of proportion and, and sometimes you have to spill the beans just to stop people talking. But even then, they don't stop talking. It's like a switch has been flipped and everyone knows there's a secret, so they treat it with care, though that doesn't stop them from telling each other they broke up and uh, oh, he came home from his mission early and she's bulimic. You don't want everyone in the ward to know the ins and outs of your life, so you try to keep them to yourself. Of course, little secrets lead to bigger secrets. It's a natural progression, like Sonia and Wendover. No one was supposed to know about that. At first, there were just whispers that she and her fiancé were... Things were rocky. There was a rumor that they had split up, that he had fallen for someone else. And then one day, one Sunday, ironically enough, everyone knew what had really happened. That she married him in a drive through wedding chapel so they could spend the night together. They got it annulled the following Monday like they were returning a movie to Blockbuster. Don't want to be married anymore? No worries. Drop your dime store ring in the slot. No one will know the difference. But see, everyone did know. And, and it's not like everyone's gossip crazy. It's more of a concern thing, you know? The ward, the congregation, it's like your extended family. Especially when you're away at school. So naturally, everyone worries about everyone else. Though sometimes you can't help wishing that people would keep their worrying to themselves. Maybe we actually suck at keeping secrets. Uh, but see, this, me, this was a secret. The kind that is a constant weight getting dragged from here to there. And you wonder why no one's noticed it. No one's questioned it. <laughs> the best way to keep a secret, Latter-day Saint or otherwise, is to keep it. To not tell anyone. Pretty simple. I've kept this a secret. I haven't told anyone. Not till my sister and Brennan. Now you. I suppose it doesn't matter anymore. You won't believe what happened today. What? I was going to my Young Democrats meeting in the Kimball Tower. FYI, there are exactly six card-carrying members of the Brigham Young University chapter of the Young Democrats of America. And two of those cards belong to Bren because she lost her first one. Uh, what do you people do at those meetings anyway, other than judge Republicans? We're on season four, okay? It's the last season before Sam leaves the show when he runs for Congress. You are truly a model for a better tomorrow. <laughs> You're hilarious. Why can't a person go anywhere in this state and proudly declare themselves a Democrat? Because people would glare at you like you're a fallen woman, all the while praying for your lost soul. The church isn't Republican. The leadership, the general authorities, they're politically neutral. As they should be. That doesn't mean I can't be a Democrat. Then be a Democrat. This is the U.S. of A., right? I mean, that means I can voice my opinions, I can say what's on my mind. Here we go. Things are wrong around here with all these conservatives running loose. Conservatives don't run. They drive. Huge-ass SUVs with terrible gas mileage that cost more to maintain than a third-world country. And expensive cars are an exclusively Republican transgression. You know that's not what I mean. <laughs> you don't have any solid political logic backing this, do you? You're only liberal because it's the minority. 
You just want to be the only one. Once you graduate and leave, you'll switch parties like that. That's not true. Then why? It looks better on paper. The word. The word? Yeah. Liberal. Shorter, rounder sounds. Love that it starts and ends with an L. <laughs> That's completely inane. It is not. That's the most ridiculous reason for political staunchness I have ever heard. And here I am thinking you're a Democrat because Rob Lowe is hot. So I like the West Wing. It's idealist. So what? You know, he's a Republican on Brothers and Sisters. What are you talking about? The TV show, Brothers and Sisters. Rob Lowe plays a Republican. With a gay brother. Whatever. What I'm saying is... I don't want to get lumped in with the spoiled little rich kids whose parents let them take new BMWs to school freshman year. Have you seen the parking lot outside of Heritage Hall's BMW, Mercedes, Audi, Lexus? Oh, you mean Lexi. Isn't that the proper plural? You're the English major, you tell me. <laughs> Are you going to lecture me on abortion now? I was hoping we would start somewhere smaller like Homeland Security or illegal immigration. <laughs> right. Yes, smaller. Excellent. Uh, what happened? Sorry? You were on your way to watch West Wing season four with the other heathen Democrats when something happened. I missed the meeting. I think the earth just stopped moving. Oh, wait. <laughs> there it's going again. <laughs> I met someone. Okay, so this is one of those key moments when things that were going so well just kind of don't. I mean, we were only three weeks into fall semester, but we had fallen into old patterns. We had lunch together almost every day. We had a goal to meet at home and make something to save money, which worked for a while. Sunday was quiet. Church and meetings and drives up the canyon with the windows rolled down. Tuesday was 50 cent night at the dollar movie, and Wednesday we went grocery shopping and watched bad TV. Friday nights were set aside to show appreciation for Ben and Jerry and movies we had already seen way too many times because who was actually going to ask us out? His name is Carter. Correction. Who is actually going to ask me out? We just stood there in the quad talking. I mean, he literally ran into me. How cliche is that? Whoa. Hey, sorry. Oh, it's all right. I wasn't really paying attention. I mean... Don't worry about it. Brennan, right? Yeah. How did you... Uh, it was a long time ago, but do you remember Tracy? Tracy Bird. Yes. You were at the... Yeah. Oh, wow. That was a while ago. Good memory. I can see them, standing together at the corner of the quad, near the old library in the JKHB, and the fall sun setting in a slight breeze. They're smiling at each other like something out of a Nora Ephron movie, regular Tom Hanks, Meg Ryan moment, and I think I might throw up. I don't know what they talked about. I wasn't there, of course, but I can imagine. You've never been. Oh, <laughs> you totally need to go. The salsa is amazing. I'm not so good with the Mexican. Oh, you'll love it. We c Why don't I take you? Sure, that'd be great. Sometimes I wish my imagination was a little less... active. So we're going out to dinner. Oh, hell. At least that's what I thought. I, I didn't say it out loud. Dinner? When? Friday. And you said yes, just like that? Yeah. Isn't it crazy? That's one word for it. You don't even know him. We've met before, and I'll get to know him. Can't you be a normal returned missionary? Can't you think awkward thoughts about the opposite sex while experiencing feelings of inadequacy and invisibility? <laughs> what are you, 14? I'm not going to marry him. It's just dinner. And it's Mexican food, so who knows how it's going to go. It went well. Because they did Italian two nights later. And Brazilian two nights after that. And then Bren came home for lunch less and less, and it was like... Hi. Hi. Something wrong? 
No, nothing. I just... I haven't seen you in a really long time. It's been like two days. Still. Sorry, I've been busy. And she's off to class. No other explanation except for, sorry, I've been busy. I'm in school too, you know. Who isn't busy? Nowadays, fifth graders are booked morning to night. I deserve a better explanation than, I've been busy. We have history. We have a rapport. We have... Can I borrow your black skirt? Sorry? You know, the shiny one? The one that's almost too short? Um... Carter and I are going to see the show, and I want to look really good. You always look really good. Sorry, what? It's in the closet on the right. Thanks. I'm feeling gutsy. Because I'm feeling pouty. And feeling pouty strangely makes me feel gutsy. So I follow her into my room and watch her go through my closet. And gutsy me speaks up before the tried-and-true thoughtful me can get a word in. So Carter, huh? You've been seeing a lot of him lately. We've got a lot to talk about. Really? What's that supposed to mean? I just wonder. I haven't even met him. Besides, anyway, it's not like I see you anymore because you're always off with Carter. That's not true. When was the last time you came home for lunch? I don't know, a couple days? Seventeen days? You're kidding. Wait, you know that off the top of your head? Oh, we just... We haven't... You, you and I haven't... Sorry, this is Carter. I've been trying to reach him all afternoon. Whoever invented the cell phone should get drawn and quartered. Truly. Instead of continuing what I wanted to be an intense and important conversation, she takes Carter's call because she would rather talk to him about whatever he finds so earth-shatteringly important. I've got two words that are going to put a smile on your face. Cold. Stone. And she's gone. So I wait. The thing is, whenever he called, when Carter called, Bren didn't come back. Our conversations went the way of limbo. Like bunnies who got bought as Easter presents because they're so cute and tiny, but get let loose in the woods when they've outgrown their cuteness. Someone's had a good day. Yeah, well... Carter? Maybe. Good grief. I'm happy, Claire. Be happy for me. I'm trying. I, I promise. I promise. I promise. She's holding my hand, Father. She's holding my hand, and there's a current running from her palm into mine. Tiny little electrodes giving off tiny little waves of energy. Waves that continue to ripple even after she lets go. Heavenly Father, I... Sometimes I wonder why I need to say these things out loud when thou hearest my thoughts before I think them. I know. I know this is the principle of prayer. There is a point to regular, sincere, vocal communication with thee. I know that, but... It feels like I'm doing this wrong. It feels like I'm doing everything wrong. I just... I... Steal my heart. Please. If I'm feeling what it is that I think I'm feeling, then something is going to be broken. And I'd really rather it wasn't. Carter's coming over. And he's bringing a friend. Oh, joy. I can't pick up my cup, what with all the running over. His name is Truman. What is it with you and former presidents? <sighs> you need to go out. You need to socialize. And Truman is getting an M.A. in English. He's going to be a poet. Yippee-I-A for him. Honestly, you could be an adult about this. You might already know him. But there are hundreds of people in the English department. It's massive. I don't even know all the faculty, let alone any of the grad students. I thought you wanted to meet Carter. I, I do. Of course I do. Just not on a double date. Maybe another time. She doesn't roll her eyes at me. She just glares. That look she gets when she doesn't have the slightest clue what's going on in my head and she really doesn't have the desire to find out because she knows it will just annoy her. 
but she accepts the rain check, and the following week we go out to lunch. The three of us. Former President Truman does not make an appearance, and I'm all right with that. So, Claire, Brennan tells me you're an English major. Is he trying to sound like my Uncle Mitch? Yep, and you're pre-law. Yep. This is where we insert what some like to call a pregnant pause. I'm sitting across the table from Brennan and Carter in Burger Supreme, waiting for the people behind the counter to call out Order 256. He's handsome enough, I guess. Carter. Extremely clean cut. Very expensively dressed. Everything on him down to his keychain has a top-tier brand attached to it. It's possible he shops at the outlets, but I doubt it. On this particular day, he's wearing a pink button-down Oxford. It takes a certain man to wear a pink shirt. Not everyone can pull it off. Except maybe Hugh Grant or Ray Fiennes. After all, Bren does have a thing for Colin Firth. Carter doesn't have the British thing going for him, but I have to admit, he looks good. Thing is, he doesn't hold a candle to Bren. She just lights everything up. And like those sad little insects that fly into flames only to burst and pop, I can't turn away. 256. They said 256. Sorry? That's you, isn't it? 256. Oh, right, sure. It wasn't his fault that I hated him from the moment I met him. I mean, he seemed like a perfectly nice person who looked good in a starched pink Van Heusen and happened to know my order number better than I did. So. So. Napkins are fascinating things when conversation is at an all-time low. Carter has an appreciation for Jane Austen. Really? Sure. Which is your favorite? Hmm. I kind of like the one with Kira Knightley. But the Gwyneth Paltrow one is pretty funny. <laughs> you know, try not to kill my dogs. That's, that's, that's pretty great. You're kidding. Have you actually read any of her books? Claire. No. Uh, I guess it's the movies I like. I had to read Pride and Prejudice for a class, but it got really dry. So I rented Dry? The... You found Pride and Prejudice to be dry? 257. That's us. Be right back. What is wrong with an you? An appreciation for Jane Austen is an appreciation for the wit and power of her language, not for two-bit film adaptations. You're being such a snob. You love those movies. It's because I've read the books. I know the books. You can't see a movie and declare a passion for Jane Austen. Why not? Because he doesn't know you as well as I do. Okay, that's apparently completely the wrong thing to say. Carter comes back to the table with a tray of burgers and fries. The same burgers and fries Brennan and I have devoured 50 times before. This time we just kind of sit, looking at them. Looking at them, and not each other. Of course I felt bad about it. I had huge guilt. If I'm the Titanic, then guilt is my iceberg. I didn't want to hurt her, of course I didn't. But even more selfishly, the last thing I wanted was for her to hate me. To even be upset with me. The thought was... It was like I had taken something delicate and lovely and smashed it unknowingly against a wall. Yes, I'm overstating. Exaggerating. I do read a lot of novels, if you couldn't tell. And, and though I was all too ready to compare him to a rake like Willoughby or Wickham, the truth is, I got used to Carter over time. I grew a tolerance for him. Like, 
blisters from new shoes gradually turn into calluses. And as calluses help to cushion you from pain, being around him all the time, it made me tougher. At first listening to the two of them talk, being on the outside of some invisible barrier, my throat would clench and my eyes brim. Not like that feeling ever went away, I just got really good at hiding it. The funny part was Carter. He seemed to enjoy the fact that he and I were in this weird brother-sister-love-hate thing, like he sensed the competition between us and dug in rather than give up. He started to call me about the most random stuff. Hey, Claire. I just got Thundercats on DVD, <laughs> if you want to watch it. Thundercats. Really, my favorite show when I was six. I'd actually enjoy that. Does Brendan like Cafe Rio? Who doesn't like Cafe Rio? Hey, I was wondering if you could help me with something. Uh, okay. I have to write this paper for my ethics class, and I thought you would be good at the proofreading thing. You know, maybe read it over and tell me if all my periods are in the right place. Places. Yeah, stuff like that. How bad could it be? The boy was pre-law, right? Yeah, whatever. Carter has the grammar and usage of a 10th grader. His spelling is... Ugh, sorry, there's bile in my mouth just now. I tore his paper to shreds, made it bleed with red ink, with circles and lines and arrows, thinking it would be the only time that he would freak at the possibility of asking me for help because I was just going to be mean about it. But the toolbox kept coming back. Oh, you are a lifesaver, Claire, a genius. I got an 88 on my ethics paper, and I know it's thanks to you. He brought me ice cream as a thank you. And then he brought his law school application, after which he fixed the CD player in my cart, which was nice of him. Especially considering I wasn't being particularly nice to him. Suddenly it was like the three of us were dating. I didn't relish the idea, but I knew it was the only way I was going to spend any time with Brennan, so I accepted their invitations to be the third wheel. Eventually Brennan and I settled back into our old patterns, the only difference being that Carter was... there. Here. All the time. Tuesday at the dollar movie. It's the only way I'll see anything with Keanu Reeves. They should pay me 50 cents to sit through this crap. Wednesdays, grocery shopping and bad TV. Turns out Carter is a closet gourmet. Tonight, you ladies will enjoy American Idol alongside my chicken pesto and linguine. I made the pesto myself. Somebody give this boy a gold star for effort. But Friday nights were the best nights because Carter, tolerable as he had become, had to work, teaching French to new missionaries. So Fridays were still mine. And Brennan and I could be... us. At least, us the way we were pre-Carter. There was one Friday when I almost told her. I remember it like... We're watching a room with a view. I've just eaten way too much pizza. I think Bren's had two slices to my six, and I'm just sitting. I'm not really paying attention to much of anything. I know the movie too well. For the first time in weeks, I'm not really even paying attention to Brennan. I take for granted the fact that she's here with me and that Carter is somewhere else. I'm content just to be sitting on that same ratty couch she is and talk about nothing like we have hundreds of times before. I can't believe how young Helena Bonham Carter is in this. She has to be, what, 18? 17, I think. She was 16, Lady Jane. Who else was in that one? Wesley from The Princess Bride. Right. 
and Captain Picard. Then she does something. Something absolutely. She lies down, her head in my lap. It is lovely and familiar and right. And somehow gutsy me comes out of hiding. I've been thinking. If it's about why E.E. E. Cummings is too good for capital letters, let's skip to the part where I don't care. It's about Carter. Hmm. I don't know if I like him. I'm expecting a rant, but she smiles. I know you don't. I mean, watching Daniel Day-Lewis bumbling through this movie, he's such a conceited twit. Of course you want Helena to end up with Julian. You just do. And I kind of think that Carter is, well... A conceited twit. Yes. So are you, in your own way. Sure, Carter can be full of himself, but he's also incredibly good to me. He's sweet, and he listens, and he wants me to be happy. Are you jealous? Rather. I'll take that as a compliment. Then the second amazing thing happens. She takes my hand. Our fingers interlace, and I need to remind myself to breathe. We sit so in near silence. The movie has faded to the dull buzz that can only come from an English comedy of manners too often watched. And I just stare at her hand in mine. A thousand thoughts pass behind my eyes and my throat is dry. Minutes go by and she doesn't let go. I have to pee, but I don't move. Not an inch. Not a muscle. Bren, I... I don't hate Carter. I don't even really dislike him. Not anymore. He's kind of grown on me, like mold. I don't know. I mean, at least there are different kinds of mold. It's even pretty sometimes. Fuzzy. You know? Look, what I hate is seeing him with you because I... Let me get this out. I have to get this out. Brennan, I love you. I'm in love with you. Silence. My eyes flick to the screen, to Helena and Julian frolicking in the Italian countryside in search of, what, approval? Consternation? Bren? She looks so... She's lovely and serene, and her weight on me is pleasantly warm and right. I can't wake her, not even to repeat what I said. Not that I could repeat it. Either way, it's a glorious two and a half minutes. At least till her phone rings. Hello? Hey, hi. I'm fine. How are you? Sorry, I just... Oh, I must have fallen asleep. Carter's off work. She leaves to go talk to him in the kitchen, likely planning to meet up at Denny's. Whatever. When December rolled around, they had been together almost four months, and I was sick to death of Provo. Of the valley, of the pollution, of stupid California drivers, and the fact that you can't buy a Coke on campus that has caffeine in it. Don't people realize that there is actually a difference in taste between the red can and the gold can? Anyway, I was looking forward to going home like you wouldn't believe, just for the change of scenery. That particular Christmas, my younger sister Natalie had a baby girl who was just over two months old. But other than the baby, nothing at home was different, except that I couldn't see Bren on a daily basis. I was walking underwater. I could see everyone and they could see me, but reaching out to them all was so hard. There was something between us at every step, at every juncture. Somehow I smiled and laughed with everyone else, but all the while I was thinking about Bren. She and Carter were planning to visit both sets of parents over the break, and that usually means a certain something is going to happen. It's just a matter of time, right? 
One morning around 6.30, I go downstairs to the kitchen. You're up early. Force of habit. What about you? I can't say no to Grace. She's lovely. Isn't she? Here, take her. Can I? Of course. Perfect. She is perfect. Creamy and soft, and she seems to like me. She smiles up at me anyway, and I know that this baby will love me as long as I love her. And I do, instantly. Oh, look out, she likes hair. Playing with it and chewing on it and pulling it out. Natalie was never someone I had confided in. Not really. I mean, she's three years younger. <laughs> what advice could she possibly offer me? Besides the fact that growing up, our conversations usually involved ear-shattering decibels and possibly some kicking. But I figured if I told her, the freak-out level would be so much lower than with either mom or dad. I mean, since the one person in the world I would normally tell was the object of my... Um... Obsession? Affection? Never mind. Hey, Nat, can I ask you something? It's going to sound cheesy and stupid. What is it? How did you know, with Tom, that he was the one? <laughs> You're right, that is cheesy. <laughs> was it something about him, or what? He snores. I never thought I could marry a man who snores. The thing is, he sleeps so well. And he's got one hand kind of flopped over and his mouth is open just a little. Looks kind of like a puppy. What about before? Before you were married or engaged even? I mean, how did you know you wanted to date him? Why? Is there someone? Someone you're thinking about? <sighs> you could say that. That was a heavy sigh. Is he hot? I don't know. <laughs> you don't know if he's hot? Deep breath. This is a time for gutsy me. Be gutsy. Screw the thoughtful. I think I'm in love with someone that I shouldn't be. Really? Who? Oh, cardinal rule, never date your roommate's ex. I shake my head. Someone else's boyfriend? No. She's enjoying this. She's actually... She tries to joke about it. It's not someone's husband, is it? Natalie, no. Then who? You're either attracted to someone or you're not. It isn't that complicated. I think... I don't know. How can you not know? Look, are you going to tell me or... It's, it's a her. It's Brennan. Silence. She just looks at me, and I look away. Grace is asleep in my arms, her little moon face a welcome distraction. You don't know that. I mean, you're not... I think I am. Oh... Tell me what to do. I don't know what to do. Don't you mean what you shouldn't do? She takes back Grace, jostling her, and the baby wakes, crying. Oh, it's all right, love. You're all right. Nat, I... Have you said anything to Mom or Dad? No. Good. Don't. I mean... I, I have to... And she's gone. We managed to avoid each other for almost two days. Not that I'm trying too hard to be found or that... We were ever super close in the first place. When she's ready, Natalie finds me. I'm at the piano, picking out the top hand of Angels We Have Heard on High. I don't look up as she sits beside me, I just slide over a little. She plays the bottom hand to my top hand. None of our broods stayed at the piano nearly as long as Mom wanted us to. And the song is almost recognizable. Almost. 
We're able to share a laugh and clear a bit of the frost that's accumulated between us since that first morning. Where's Grace? With Tom. When was the last time you went out? With a guy? Freshman year. I went Dutch to dinner and a movie with McKay Swim. We worked the same shift at the library. Oh, so you were dating. McKay? No. He told me I wasn't the kind of girl he would... marry. He said that? After one date? BYU can be a weird place. Yeah, it can. And that was your freshman year? Five years ago. That was your last date? Yes, so I'm a social reject. What's your point? Why haven't you asked guys out? I mean, you need to be assertive. Just put yourself out there and someone will- This is me, Nat. When have I ever put myself out anywhere? I would much rather stay in, thank you very much. Look where it's got you. I didn't ask for this. I didn't wake up one morning and pray, Oh, Father in Heaven, please make me gay. Is that supposed to be funny? Would you rather it were true? Maybe you just haven't met the right guy. I mean, you and Brendan have always been close. You spent so much time together that it's, it's not really a surprise that you've formed an attachment. She sounds like a page out of Jane Austen, minus the gentility. You aren't listening to me. I haven't even thought about guys in a long time. I haven't thought of them as hot or cool or even... I, I just haven't. There has to be something you're doing wrong. What? Tell me what. I'm not a bad person, am I? I study and I pray. I try to go to the temple once a week. I do my visiting teaching. I fast. I pay my tithing. I served an honorable mission, Nat. I believe in everything I've always believed in. I just... feel differently. And this girl, Brennan, have you thought about kissing her? Yes. A lot? Thinking or kissing? Never mind. This doesn't make me... This isn't a sin, all right? If I sleep with a man, if, if I sleep with a woman, it doesn't matter. If it's outside of marriage, there's the sin. But to love someone like... You'll find the right guy. Who is going to marry me? Someone... You're so smart and talented, and you're beautiful. It's not the same. You're my sister. It's different when you or mom or dad says it. Or Bishop Gates, even. It's never a guy on a date or whatever telling me because he likes me. Or, heaven forbid, loves me. Never? Never. I've never had a serious relationship with a guy, Nat. I've gone out with a few, but only once or twice. So, because guys don't ask you out, you think you're a lesbian? I hadn't thought of it in exactly those terms. And suddenly it all seemed foolish and fake. That I was putting it on myself like I was changing coats despite the summer heat. Did I make it all up? Have I simply spent so much time with Bren that I can't imagine spending time with anyone else? Maybe I just like her so much that I always want to be in the same room with her. Or was I just jealous that she and Carter had each other while I had no one? That I was destined for an eternity of third-wheelness? Brennan called, on Christmas Eve, from her mom's house in Mesa. Hearing her voice was... wow. Hi, how's Oregon? Fine. Arizona? Gorgeous. 70 degrees and holding. Oh, don't tell me that. Can I tell you something else? Deep breath. Here it comes. Carter's asked me to marry him. If you couldn't tell... 
Christmas was kind of a disaster. It's cliche, I know, but I so want to get married in June. Was she in love with him? I hadn't known what I was going to major in after a year and a half. Could she know after four months that this was the man with whom she was meant to spend eternity? Claire, you're my best friend. Be my maid of honor. Please. Claire? Sorry, I think my cell is... It's snowing. I'd love to. Of course I will. I'm a terrible person. I'm a liar. I lied. The last thing in the world I wanted was to be a bridesmaid. But it would thrill her to hear me say yes, so I said yes. Can I just say, watching someone else dating is boring. Reality TV works because some poor editor has to wade through hours of footage to piece together 45 minutes of high drama. Peace being the key word. 95% of Survivor is just people sitting on an island. Boring. At least watching reality TV, you can change the channel when things get slow or, well, awkward. When the drama is unfolding in your living room, you don't exactly enjoy that luxury. You did not just throw that out. What? It's glass. It's a jar. Peanut butter is gone, so I throw the jar away. No, you don't. You recycle it. What for? What for? You can't just throw it out. So what? You want to keep pencils in it? No, I don't want it. Then what are you talking about? Killing the planet. It's a jar. Yeah, that was a good one. Or how about... Oof. It doesn't taste like a burger. It's tofu. Ugh. Those are the tiny things, the tiny things that couples call little bumps in the road. But there are the not-so-tiny things, the questions that come up when two people attempt to combine their separate lives into one, especially when you haven't been together that long in the first place. What's all this? Grad school applications. I've always dreamed of going to Columbia. Columbia? Wow. That's great. Isn't it? Yeah. But it's in New York. So? Well, I'm applying to law schools on the West Coast. There are fantastic journalism programs in the West. Sure, UC Berkeley maybe, and maybe you could apply to a couple places back East as well, just in case. You know, a fallback plan. Sure. I mean, okay. Golly, this is awkward. I'm just going to sit on the couch and read my book and look like I'm not listening. How can I not be listening? But I can't look like I'm listening. The thing is, and I know it's crazy talk, but it was worse when they got along. I just... I couldn't handle it. If I walked into a room and they were cuddling on the couch, or paging through bridal magazines, or dozing through the closing credits of The Count of Monte Cristo, I would turn on my heel and go back the way I came. Because it... them. It didn't feel right. I split most of my free time that semester between my very small room and the stale air of the humanities level of the library. I quietly quit being the third wheel of the Brennan Carter mobile in February. I said I was busy, that I had papers to write, books to read. I read a lot. It's what I do. They didn't question. They didn't really even notice. They were so into each other, so that was okay. I tried not to think about it. For the first time in my life, I avoided something I loved. I walked to school every morning to feel the pricking of the wind and enjoy the numbness in my face. It was hard to think about other things when my ears ached with the cold. And I knew, walking up 7th North toward campus, why God had created winter. For this express reason. To let the outside deflect a little of what was going on inside. 
It was like I was back on my mission, and the only serious conversations I was having were with God. Which is okay, really. He's a very good listener, and I think he appreciates my word choice. I like to think he does anyway. Heavenly Father, make me stronger. Help me endure. Show me that thou lovest me, that I'm worth something to thee. And he would. He still does. Tiny little miracles just for me. My checking account staying out of the red. A surprise extension on an unfinished paper. A sale on Clementine's at Albertson's. The chance sighting of a cardinal outside my window. And always that constant warmth in the center of my chest that told me I wasn't alone. Not really. Though in my selfish, imperfect way, I couldn't help thinking it wasn't enough. One day the phone rang. My phone actually rang. But it wasn't Brennan. It was Natalie. Something had happened. Hi. Hi. You're not answering your cell. Sorry, I've been on the other line. What's going on? Can you take me to the airport? I don't think I should drive. Sure, of course. She comes a little closer and I don't turn my head. I don't let myself look at her because I can smell her. I can smell the Clinique happy and it's not right, it's not right that I should want anything for myself at this moment. In this moment when my sister is... What happened? Grace was dead in her crib this morning. Tom's gone for work and he's stuck. Something about a really big storm. I'm going to stay with Natalie. She shouldn't be alone. I'm so sorry. She's at my elbow. And I have to tell myself, breathe. Breathe like a little Gracie can't. She was just... She's gone. I don't understand. I don't think we're supposed to. Probably not. There are a lot of things I don't understand. I am unprepared. All too soon her arms are around me and happy is in my nostrils and coating the back of my throat like she'd put too much on. But it's just that I haven't been this close to her in weeks and it's overwhelming the sense of homecoming. I'm afraid something in me might just break but I can't pull away. I turn my head just slightly and her face is there inches from mine, then centimeters, millimeters. Our cheeks touch for several seconds. Stolen time, starry nights, lilacs in May, little happy secrets. I don't realize I'm kissing her until she pulls away. What are you- I'm sorry, I- I'm sorry. What time is your flight? Seven. Then we better go, I'll get my keys. It's rush hour, and we get stuck on I-15 around Murray for what feels like ages. Brennan's knuckles are white on the wheel. Her hands can't stop moving, fidgeting, adjusting the radio, the air, the mirrors. I just sit and want to die. At the curb of Terminal 1, I say thanks, and she says... She doesn't even look at me. She just... So I get out of the car, I walk away, and I get on a plane. It's past 11 when I get to Natalie's. The front door is open, just a single lamp on in the living room. Hello? Nat? Down the hall in the master bedroom, Natalie lies on top of the covers, her back to the door. I can't tell if she's sleeping. Natalie? Nat, the front door is open. Did you mean to leave it open? I locked it anyway. She's awake, and her voice is clear and brittle as glass. Don't put your bag there. Put it in the spare room. Okay. More silence. 
but this time a different kind. I lie with my sister in the dark. I hold her while she cries, while we cry together. I don't understand, Father. I don't... A baby. She's only a baby. She isn't old enough to sin to even talk. It doesn't make sense. I can't get my head around it. Natalie is a good mother. She should be a mother. And I... I'm trying so hard, Heavenly Father. I'm trying to be good. I think I'm good. Why this? Why this child? It's so unfair. It's just... Is it me? Is it some strange eye for an eye thing? I thought we were past the law of Moses. I didn't think my family would be punished for my... Is it even a sin? To wonder, to care, to want. That's where the sin comes in, doesn't it? The wanting. The fact that I want something I can never have. Well, I'm not the one that put her there for the wanting. You know what I'm saying? Forgive me, Father, for my selfishness. I don't know how I turned this to be about me. I didn't mean for that to happen. I stayed with Natalie till the day after the funeral. I thought about calling Bren a whole mess of times. I, I even did the whole dial all with the last number bit. Ridiculous. When I get home, Bren is at the kitchen table studying. Looking at her, tasting happy in the back of my throat. Hi. Hi. I'm sorry about your niece, about Grace. Thank you. We should probably... We should talk. All right. You know, if we're needing to talk, there's a lot of talk that's not happening right now, and... Claire, I... I love Carter. Okay. He's asked me to marry him, and I've accepted. That's not going to change. But I need to know something. I, I just need to... Never mind. I don't want to know. We. You, you and I. I don't even know what to call it, but, but it's just... We can't... It can't happen. You need to find someone who will make you happy. You think I don't know that? It hurts me like you cannot believe to feel this way, to be this lonely. At the same time, I don't know if I want to kneel at the altar with anyone. Something is missing. On the one hand, it's the guy. On the other hand, it's me. Nothing is wrong with you. Isn't there? Of course not. I don't think about sex. I don't fantasize. I don't wonder. I don't masturbate. I don't think about men as physical counterparts. I just think of them as men, guys, people in front of you in the checkout line who beat you to the last cookie and steal your parking spot and don't shower nearly enough. That's all. A husband is supposed to be your best friend, someone to hold your hand in good or ill. Guess what, Bren? You're my best friend. You always have been. You're the only person I want to spend time with. So you've thought about sex with me? No. <laughs> I don't understand. I've thought about kissing you. About holding you while you sleep. I've thought about- Stop. I can't hear that. You're my best friend. And I love you for that. As a friend. But I don't know if we can do that anymore. You joking? You don't think I can be enough of an adult to maintain our friendship? I'm moving out. 
I'll find someone to take my spot in the, the house. The semester is half over. No one's looking for an Then apartment. I'll stay at my cousin's and, and pay the rent. I just... I don't think we should live together. You think I'm going to come into your room in the middle of the night? What you're suggesting? What you're asking Am I ever me? going to see you again after you're married? And suddenly my feelings have everything to do with what you want. I... I have to... Are you okay? A little dizzy. No big deal. You're all... You're kind of ashen. Are you... I'm freaking out and I've been fasting. Bad combination. Fasting what for? What do you think? Sorry. Of course. I just... How long? Your fast, how long has it been going on? On and off this week. You've been fasting all week? On and off, I said. I've been eating dinner sometimes. Claire, that's not healthy. I'm feeling a little short in the clarity department. I'm trying to figure things out. Fasting is supposed to clear the mind and... I don't know what else to do. I meant to tell you so much sooner, but then Natalie's baby and Carter... Yes, Carter. You don't like him. He's a little self-involved. He's used to being right. He drives a Lincoln Navigator. It was a present from his parents when he got into law school. What are, what were you and he discuss over dinner? Are you laying ground rules? Are you going to limit your conversation to please pass the Liberty Cabbage? How does he feel about the GOP? Does he go deer hunting? Collect guns? I had no idea you were this bitter. You don't love him. You're just saying that because... It's nothing to do with me. This all happens so fast. You and Carter, you think you're in love with him. I have to go. I'll email you about the suburbs. I should be the one to go. Nothing's going to be the same, and it's my fault. Where will you go? Seattle. Natalie. You're going to leave school? For a while. You can't Hun, just... I love you. I would do just about anything for you, but I can't stay and watch you marry him. I should, but... I'm not strong enough. I didn't stop. I didn't let myself. Before I could change my mind, I withdrew from the university. I filled my car with clothes, with books, with movies. Didn't really look, just moved to keep moving. And I drove to Seattle. I thought that was your car. What are you... I expected a visit, but not so soon. <sighs> Surprise! I was thinking about looking for a job. Any ideas? Nat had worked at a Borders before having Grace, and she introduced me to her old manager. I had a little miracle. He hired me on the spot. It didn't take long to settle into a routine. Natalie didn't ask questions. She just opened doors. Things were okay. They were fine because I kept moving. Except for the hole in me. The void that I kept trying to fill with work and writing and books. 30% is a dangerous discount. But nothing stayed. Nothing took root. The hole didn't shrink. But it didn't exactly grow, either. It just... was. A hole in my being. A hole where Brennan should have been. Except that I tried to cut her out, neatly, with those sharp little shears Nat uses to cut out photos for her scrapbooks. Though the photo is gone, I can still see Brennan. Right there. Like... Those months in Seattle, they kind of blur together when I think back on them. They were empty. I went to work, I came home, and I read, like always. What are you reading? Persuasion. Again? Mm-hmm. I don't understand how you can do that, read things over and over. I'm gonna read something, I like it, and that's all. I don't even like to own books. Oh, I know. It must be good if you're reading it for the zillionth time. It's one of the best. You can borrow it if you want. You'd like it. It's a love story. Classic. Happy ending? Do you want to know? 
I need one, I think, even if it's fictional. Okay, here. It's a good ending, I promise. Oh, don't you want to finish it first? I practically have it memorized. Take your time. I won't need a dictionary, will I? <laughs> you shouldn't. Thanks. No problem. My sister and I have always been good at giving each other space. She did her thing, I did mine. But now we had both endured a heartbreak, and that changed the air between us. Leveled the playing field? I don't know. We had something in common, something we hadn't before. We could each understand the other's sorrow, and then, suddenly, the incongruities in taste, in personality, all seemed superficial. After all, we both want what everyone wants. That elusive happy ending. What I've realized, though, is that a happy ending, that's a bit of a tall order for every day. I mean, ultimately, sure, you want to end happily. But at the same time, who wants to end? Either you're happy and ended, or you're not quite happy, but at least still living. It's a literal take, I know, but that's where I have to find consolation. In the fact that I'm still living. A day to day, hour to hour, breath to breath, just living. Nat, I'm home. There's mail for you. Mom send it up. Not like there's ever anything good. Credit card, credit card, phone bill, student loan, junk... Oh. Oh. How's work? Claire? What's wrong? It's a vellum envelope, addressed in calligraphy. To Miss Claire Allen and guest, Brennan Ashley Chandler and Carter Dallas Weston have chosen to be sealed for time and all eternity in the Mesa LDS Temple on Friday, the 23rd of June. You are cordially invited to attend a reception held in their honor. The invitation is an ivory card with a linen finish. Timeless. Classic. When I pull the card out, a photograph and a slip of paper fall to the floor, fluttering like a lost soul. In the photo, Brennan and Carter grin cheek to cheek, posed against Y Mountain in matte-finished black and white. On the slip of paper, written in a familiar hand, are three little words. Stop me. Please. Keys! Where are my keys? I just had them. They Hold were... on a second. What's going on? Friday. Friday. The wedding is Friday morning. Tomorrow. Claire, wait! I can't. I have to go. I'll call you from the road. Do you even know where you're going? Claire! Claire. When Nat called me, I heard Brennan's voice. Was I going crazy? Was I finally losing it? I just got in the car. I grabbed my wallet and a six-pack of Coke, and I drove to Mesa. I don't know what I expected to do. If this was a scene out of a romantic comedy, I might just burst into the wedding and yell, WAIT! Do people actually do that? Real people, I mean? I drove all night. Sometime around four in the morning, the car was wavering, weaving a little in the lane. I was hunched over the wheel, straining my eyes to keep them open. I did finally park at a rest stop, made myself take a nap just as the sun was rising. Then back on the road. It's a miracle that I didn't get pulled over, since I was pushing 85 and 90 most of the time. Good little Honda kept on trucking. I only stopped to fill the tank, to pick up sugar, and caffeine. Now, getting to Mesa wasn't a problem, but I'd never been to the Mesa Temple, so once I hit the sprawl of the suburbs, and Mesa is basically one gigantic suburb, I had no idea where to go. I guess I thought I would just find it. I mean, it's a temple, how can you miss it, right? but I wandered up and down streets for more than an hour, frustrated to tears before I let myself ask for directions. When I find the temple, there is a crowd on the steps out front. From a distance, I recognize Brennan's parents. There's people everywhere. Aunts and uncles and cousins and a photographer. 
But where... Applause. Cheers as Mr. and Mrs. Carter Weston step out into the Arizona sunshine. It is incredibly hot. I sit sweating in my car in the parking lot for I don't know how long. I don't roll down the windows. I just sit in the heat, my hair going stringy and my clothes damp. Breathing out of my mouth, sucking in more heat than air. Watching from across the lot as the wedding party poses on the grounds, as they split into groups and drive away. For the luncheon and eventually the reception, I guess. I could go to say hi or whatever. But I know somehow that if I see her, it will be worse. For her. For me. It'll just spoil the day and so many people will... Talk. Secrets, right? Bren deserves better than that. I deserve better than that. So I turn the key, get back on the 202, head north. On the drive home, a gray film hangs over everything despite the sun. I have a roaring headache, I'm starving, and a shower can only be a good thing. I don't think about driving, I just do it, totally on autopilot, the speedometer holding steady at 65. I sit back, both hands on the wheel, elbows relaxed, eyes half closed. Eventually my right hand falls away from the wheel. My foot is on the gas. Seventy. Seventy-five. It's a straight stretch of highway, heat shimmering, hovering just above the asphalt, blurring the horizon. Not a lot of traffic. I am alone in the middle of the desert. How appropriate. Eighty. The fingers of my left hand relax. Eighty-five. It'd be so easy to just let go of everything. So I do. I drop my hand from the wheel altogether. Ninety. The car starts to veer into the left lane. Ninety-five. I look down the hood of the Honda through the haze of heat at the shallow ditch running between the two sections of freeway and I... I couldn't go through with it. <laughs> I took the wheel in both hands and turned it sharply to the right. Took my foot off the gas. I did make it home. How? I'll say divine intervention. And you'll likely smile at that. But it's what I know. The hole is still there, ragged along the edges, and I look for something. Maybe someone to fill it. Eventually. But I do have a slip of paper that I carry with me everywhere I go. A slip of paper blank except for three little words. It's funny. It's like it's enough that she asked, that she considered me enough to ask. Stolen time, starry nights, lilacs in May, little happy secrets. You know mine now. There are no more. And since we're doing old school throwback stuff here... Hello, this is Heather. I am the unofficial matriarch of the Mormon Expositor Podcast. I'm only 35. Can you be a matriarch at 35? Anyway, you can comment on this episode on the website, infantsonthrones.com. And if you really like what you hear, give the quorum a five-star rating and write a short review on iTunes. I did. Okay, I actually haven't, but I'll be doing that as soon as I'm done recording. Anyone for the closing prayer? Thank you for listening to 
Game Prince on Thrones.